0: Welcome back to a brand new season of things are going great for me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're returning to the show, I'm absolutely thrilled. Thank you for being a fan and thank you for being patient as I start putting out a fourth season. And if you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me your host at Jay Deering on both Instagram and Threads and you can follow our show handle on Instagram and Threads at things are going great for me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our Patreon and some cool things are going great for me swag including a quietly dignified things are going great for me coffee mug. Sometimes I like to use my things are going great for me coffee mug for when I paint my mountain landscapes and I need a mug with a little water in it to clean my paintbrush. Overshare. We've also got hoodies, T-shirts and tote bags. So check them out and listen in comfort and style. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at things are going great for me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from our season 1, season 2, and season 3 guests. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com/Things are going great for me. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness, subscribe to the show, leave us a nice comment, tell your aunt about us, give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. I started this podcast during the pandemic. It was a way to get my feelings out about the fear of that moment and to touch base with fellow artists about the challenges, the wins, the close calls, the frequent feelings of inertia, the imposter syndrome, and life events that are all marked by a career in the arts. I had a bunch of extraordinarily interesting conversations with movie stars, TV stars, and Tony Award winners on this podcast. And we've received write-ups in The Hollywood Reporter and IndieWire and landed Vulture's coveted This Week in Comedy podcast list. And we continued for three seasons. And then the news started to report that the pandemic was over. Whether it's over or not is still a debate, seems like everything is a fierce debate these days, but one thing has changed for me, which is that I've suddenly got a lot more things I've got to drive my kids to. Baseball games and practices, Taekwondo, school, which I'm not sure they need, nor can we afford. At the end of our third season, I said, if this podcast came back at all, it would most likely come back in a different form. And then we experienced another historic pause, This time affecting a group of industries with labor unions, including our own entertainment industry, a nationwide summer of labor strikes that shut down the entertainment business kicked off by the brave and heartfelt members of the Writers Guild of America, who I'm happy to say at the time of this recording have their deal in hand, a huge congratulations to them. Long had I recognized the need for artists' unions to strike in the age of the big streaming companies. And I watched in awe many times when writers won successful strikes against distribution companies and even winning a battle against their own agents protesting over illegal packaging practices. And I was proud to be out on the picket line the first day of the writer's strike. Meanwhile, the Screen Actors Guild, our only previous successful strike was 43 years ago in the year 1980. Since then, the business has changed a number of times, including the advent of the VHS tape, then TiVo and DVDs. And finally, the Silicon Valley companies arrived in Hollywood to fundamentally shake up the industry, introducing streaming content for the first time. With each of these changes in content delivery, contracts consistently have failed to adequately address working actors' needs for a sustaining career. And having watched firsthand as the AMPTP successfully divided and conquered the dueling actors guilds SAG and AFTRA during previous negotiations, I had a strong feeling that we were fired up and ready to hit the pickets lines this time around. As of this recording, SAG, AFTRA, and the AMPTP have met almost every day this week, and I'm cautiously hopeful for some good news. And though it's been a particularly painful sacrifice for many, not just in the entertainment business, but for all folks with businesses and careers affected by the work stoppage, it's also been an incredibly inspiring and badly needed period of labor solidarity in this country. It's history in the making. And I'm humbled to be one of the artists who's been out on the line many times now striking alongside my fellow union members. And though I needed to wait before putting out an episode until after the strikes concluded, I feel there's more I want to say with this podcast series. I think part of what's hopefully valuable and unique about what we do at things are going great for me is our two perspectives formula in each of our podcast episodes with a first guest who has a recognizable name and a second guest, who's either an exciting up and comer that I think you should know about or they're an established writer, director, producer, or casting director. But I don't have an endless amount of famous friends, (laughs) you know, no, no real surprises there. Who, Who the hell am I after all? And so I was starting to accept publicist referrals. Um, and I think another part of the charm of this series is that almost every one of these guests has been someone I've either worked with personally or I've known socially. So in order to keep our show's family and friends ethos and to maintain our individual episode format, we'll be moving forward one episode at a time for now. If there are folks that I know that I want you to hear from, then I'll put out an episode. Because we're going forward one episode at a time, we're doing so without a package of episodes to sell to a sponsor. So of course, if you'd like to become a sponsor of this show for any package of episodes, send us an email at thingsaregoinggreatforme at gmail.com. Also, this is a great time to support us by joining our Patreon at patreon.com thingsaregoinggreatforme. Today's first guest is Jimmy Wolk. Jimmy is known for starring alongside Robin Williams on the CBS series The Crazy Ones. He's also known for playing the enigmatic Bob Benson on the Emmy and Golden Globe winning AMC period drama series Mad Men. More recently, Jimmy has starred in the CBS drama thriller series Zoo, in addition to playing Senator Joe Keane on the HBO superhero limited series Watchmen. And he just finished starring as Joe Kimbrough on the CBS drama series Ordinary Joe, which follows his character on three parallel timelines as a police officer, a music star and a nurse. Jimmy also had starring roles in films For a Good Time Call and The Stanford Prison Experiment. Next up, he's starring in the George Clooney-directed The Boys in the Boat, due out in theaters this holiday season. Jimmy and I have known each other for a long time. I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast. I'll be speaking with him in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Daria Politon. Daria is the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Devil in Ohio, a Netflix limited series starring Emily Deschanel, which debuted at number one on Netflix and ascended the Nielsen ratings chart with 1.38 billion viewing minutes in one week alone. Daria also authored the best selling thriller novel, Devil in Ohio, which she adapted into the series. Daria was co-executive producer of Stephen King's Castle Rock for Hulu, where her episode The Laughing Place was named one of Entertainment Weekly's best TV episodes of 2019. Her TV credits include the Amazon series Jack Ryan and Hunters, in addition to the stars series Heels, Hulu's Shut Eye, and MGM's The Condor. As a playwright, Daria wrote and directed her play Palmyra for Los Angeles' Center Theater Group's Kirk Douglas Theater. Her plays have been produced at the Kennedy Center, Actors Theater of Louisville, Cherry Lane Theater, Ensemble Studio Theater in New York, and Cape Cod Theater Project. Daria has completed residencies with London's Royal Court Theater, Center Theater Group, and the Echo Theater. She is also a founding member of the Kilroys, the advocacy group for gender parity in the American Theater. I'm thrilled to have her on. Stick around for Daria's interview. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it.
1: But before we move on to the
0: interviews, I couldn't be more honored. I'm positively chuffed to welcome back my producer and co-host, the brilliant and hilarious, the famously reclusive Winston Carter.
1: I'm fair. Good. Fair. Accurate. I think famously reclusive is what I'm going to lead with from now on.
0: So, hot labor summer has come to a close. Mm-hmm. We're now in, we're, we're into heat wave labor autumn. Yeah. <laughs> we're the last gasps of the summer autumn. Uh, however, the writers have gotten their tentative deal, and this mm-hmm. week, the actors are in negotiations with the AMPTP. Actors may even have a deal in hand by the time of the publishing of this episode. Here's hoping.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: how was your hot labor summer?
1: uh uh good i've been mostly unemployed uh but not not i'm not in any of the guilt, so i've just been unemployed for like fun like i'm like an add-on unemployed person <laughs> are you funny. do you consider yourself pre-wga uh i i sure i don't know i yeah <laughs> i i think i would like to be in it at some point but also uh I've had to face a lot of hard truths about uh, <laughs> uh, like age of the in, age to get into the industry this summer. Like, oh, no, no.
0: no, I don't believe in you, that. I, I'm, I, think, I, I consider myself
1: pre-successful. Yeah, you're already successful. <laughs> You've been in a Steven Soderbergh movie. You're su- like that's one. A, that's just one. Like, just one. So you know how many other people have been in just you one know how many, many you know Brad Pitt has been in? Well, uh, well I no, how the, many. four, four. four? Four, <laughs> Clooney. I think Clooney's the same amount. No, Clooney's been in five. Clooney's been
0: probably in At more least. they had a they had a company together.
1: Clooney's been in, I think five. Oh, but wait, who? He might be in that weird uh, Panama Papers movie. It's I don't know. Steven Soderbergh makes a lot of movies. So it, it, it's, I don't know.
0: It's a good coincidence you're bringing up George Clooney because one of our guests, Jimmy, is in a Clooney movie coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? Did you Do you feel like you were affected with regards to hiring? I know you were looking for a job. Do you feel like with these strikes going on that they did affect your job, Hunt?
1: Yeah, I think in general, I mean, a slowdown in the entertainment industry affects everybody even if you're, like, only tangentially in it. So being, like a pro, like, someone who's, like, essentially been – I've been a producer for the past three years. Like, even though I'm not producing that type of content, I'm still, like – like, the industry as a whole is going to slow down if the industry is slowing down. So mm-hmm. I feel like that has effect. But also, it might be more so that the problems that are affecting writers and actors are affecting the rest of the industry and resulting in there being less jobs overall. Right. Right. The yeah.
0: the, the streamers that have come in have changed the industry in the same way that, you know, it's, it's the way that the inter- internet has changed everything. It's sort of yep. like the finger of God sort of... Mm-hmm coming down and, and the whole the, the whole thing sort of spinning into something new um did you cancel i canceled a couple of my accounts in protest did you cancel y- accounts? yeah
1: i turned off netflix for a little bit good for you <laughs> for, for a week that <laughs> not i can't t- that one I, I can't do
0: that one because Why? they have because they get you with the kid stuff
1: oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah the kid programming on on there is uh it's a it's a it's a, it's a deal breaker you can't you can't. I got the one I got yeah. rid of was YouTube TV. I don't know that they were the biggest.
1: Uh, <laughs> that's like barely that, an offender because that's like turning the biggest off cable bad actor, Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: But they were. I. But maybe it was just a, a side protest because it's, you. YouTube yeah. TV was very expensive. Um, YouTube TV was seventy. It's like seventy three dollars a month.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think I have Directv now or whatever, and I think it's about the same. Yeah. Right. It's, exactly. They're all, paying, they're all like 70 bucks. Yeah.
0: I signed up instead for, I finally signed up for the Criterion Ooh, channel, which fancy.
1: is $775 cheaper per year than YouTube TV. How much is it? What is it? Like 10 bucks a month? How much? It's like, like 20 bucks a month? It's like a hundred bucks. Oh, for the whole for the, year? For the whole year. Oh, wow. And that I'm, sounds cool. I respect really enjoy it, is it yeah. every Criterion movie? Every movie in the Criterion collection? It's a
0: lot of. It no, can't I, think be all they, of them. I think they. I think they sort of. Yeah. Well, they. But they curate them in a really mm-hmm. fun way. I mean, think the, the thing that the the issue I have with Netflix and some of these other uh, big streamers, just when it comes to uh, the content itself that they are uh, offering, is that. You know they 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 have the biggest fire hose. It feels like, but then it's what you end up getting is like whatever was nominated for an Oscar in the last five years. Mm -hmm. You know, or uh, big the same twenty big popcorn movies like you know Independence Day or whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever had you know for the last twenty years. But like you know, you're not gonna find probably like a John Cassavetes movie. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not gonna find. Uh, some of those great independent movies from the from the 90s or the 70s you know or even i assume there were good movies made in the 80s you know <laughs> <laughs> yes yes uh through 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 a haze of cocaine um mm-hmm. all right folks without further ado here now is the kind and thoughtful talented extremely charming and criminally handsome James, Jimmy, Walk. Is that when you started this? That's when I, yeah. Now it wasn't the plan that I, we, I was gearing up. I think I had done, I was gearing up to do it. And then uh, I got in touch with the, uh, Chris Pine, who I had known from years ago doing theater. And um, yeah. I think by the time we we did the interview, we were under lockdown. That had sort of just kind of happened, but I was always planning. I think he, so I think he and I had been sort of emailing and trying to find a time. Great. And I think there was some a couple, maybe there was a pause in there at some point when you right. know, waiting to hear back and then we were in it. And then, and then so that became, once I recorded that interview, I, then I I was sort of off to the races. And it's um, great. And now, of course, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do a fourth season of this show was to cover another historic period of time, which is this Writers Guild strike. Um, yeah, in which, right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it, in which SAG members have also overwhelmingly authorized a labor strike pending negotiations. Um, how are you spending your
2: time right now? Are you fully stopped working at this point? Totally stopped. Yeah. And that we're talking like the end of this month is when we should know whether the sex strike happens. Right. Yeah. Our contract is up at the end of this month. Um, right. yeah, yeah. It's been like you said, it's been, everything is like at a standstill. And I think that obviously the writer strike is everything is very, very much a standstill. And then with the pending actor strike, whatever was even still left in the pipeline, like because no one wants to be in the middle of production when there's an actor strike. Yeah. Um, I am just trying not to drive myself crazy during this time that's quieter. So I'm trying just to do like enjoy life outside of that. Like right now we're at an we're down in Georgia at an Airbnb visiting our in laws. We just came from eight days in Michigan visiting my family. Right. And so you know we're just having fun with family. Like we just did eight days in Michigan. Like went to my nephew's baseball games and you know had dinners at my folks' house and. And um, we're just sort of living our lives and doing a lot of family time, which we can do right now too, because it's summer. Like the kids aren't in school, so we could grab them and go. Like the yeah. day they got out of school, we took off for this like family, uh, you know, cruise. Um, so we're doing a lot of that. Played guitar today for like two hours with my father in law. He's a great guitarist. Nice. We played like some John Prine and we played some, oh, nice. Uh, some like Bob Seeger just on the porch. So, yeah, just, you know, living life and trying not to think too much about it other than obviously supporting what's happening because there's a reason for it. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, knowing that eventually things will go back to normal, the question is, is when. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we may be in for a longer haul. And, uh, you know. What do you they've... think? Yeah. What's your thoughts on that?
0: Just I think, well, I remember, so I was out there on the line uh, with some of the writers, uh, particularly in the beginning. I remember yeah. there was some uh, chatter about uh, SAG and whether they would strike and sort of this thing of well they never strike um, and I think you know as I recall when this happened before uh, I had just sort of moved to LA and it was 2007 so, was, so I was yeah. still very new and I think I think yeah. that was the year that I started booking I think was thinking my first year where I started to book some work and right. I don't remember, I remember when the strike happened in there but, um, but there, it was another writer strike and then um but maybe that wasn't the time I'm trying to remember when this was i remember there was a time when they we were considering a strike and that's when the producer the AMPTP, sort of went for after actors and sort of right. did this thing of being like oh well we'll hire these folks these actors who are in another right guild. that's and, right and so i think i remember that it, there was sort of this general feeling of being flabbergasted like oh well wait a minute who are these other what's this other guild and then there was this big debate as to whether or not these guilds should come together and there was i remember there were very sharp arguments on both sides of whether or not these unions should join particularly because they 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 incorporate or and encompass other you know sort of uh professions like uh broadcast journalism things like that and um and now I think, you know, what was interesting is like, I remember because these writers this time around were sort of saying like, well, SAG never strikes or, or that it's too big. And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm not so sure this time. I think because there was a lot of, there was, a, I think there were, I think folks felt sore. Uh, particularly, you know, I think actors felt sore about that kind of, we got sort of like, um, got the runaround with that like, oh, divide and conquer, thing that happened with SAG and after last time. And I think that people hel- held on to that. That was what yeah. I thought. I said, I'm not sure. I think we're in with you all, you know, you sh- wait yeah. and see. And then we had this overwhelming uh authorization 90 something percent Huge of folks authorization. That, that, yeah. that, that voted that much
2: 90 wow
0: it was hot it was in the 90s and so i you know i'm i wouldn't, wouldn't say i'd be able to predict how long the whole thing is going to go but i know that there's a fervor from actors and i think like mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: you know one of the things that you know we want to make sure of, that this is a, a business where folks at all levels can Make a living and, and that be this compensated. Yeah, and that this is not a hobby for for you know the v- vast majority of artists who are you know, and you know want to make sure that there are protections also for folks, including health benefits and stuff. So I'm glad, right. I'm very happy that 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 folks are digging their heels in and. um you know, uh, let's, you know, let's you and I, w- we should go out, we should do a, we should hop on the line with folks. So, so one of these days, because this is going to, I do think it's going to go on for a little while and we should be out there. Uh,
2: we should choose a debt We
0: should do it. Yeah, go, I would go, love to. Go I would totally do
2: that. And um, it's, you know, as you're talking, I would totally do that, by the way, um, especially when we're back in town. And that was one of the things I was wondering about you is where, where you're based. I didn't, I thought you might've been living in New York. Right, but then you saw me eating a bagel in LA, and so you're like, "Oh, well, he must be in LA." I was eating a bagel. You came with, yeah, I was eating a bagel. I was having uh, a bagel with locks, and all of a sudden, I was like, "What?" I remember um, just seeing you. I was like, I just audibly was like, "What the hell?" But you weren't wearing your glasses. Is that possible? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I wasn't it, wearing my glasses. So would took, took you a second. The whole time we knew each other, you had glasses. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so it just took me like a real second only because I was like, what are your, your glasses right now? There would be no question. I would recognize you from a mile away. Right. Um, so it just took me a second, you know, when you <laughs> associate someone with something. But um, yeah, then you're like, oh, okay, he lives in LA. He's eating a bagel. Yeah, we're based out of LA. And you we've are, been, okay. we've been We've been in LA for, well, I've been in LA for 13 years since I was in New York. 2007 2008 then moved to LA at like the end of 2008 beginning of 2009 and that's when we met also got it um, right right um but uh, uh, yeah we're based out of LA because
0: you you had recently come off an NBC show that I think was shooting in New York
2: right in Atlanta it was shooting it was uh, it was, was, was in Atlanta, interestingly right. enough it was in New York uh, but it was Atlanta <laughs> for now, New it, York. Atlanta for New York yeah it was Atlanta New York um now
0: this it, was this, this is a was show a called girl, this is this is a show called uh, Ordinary Joe, right? Right. Yep. one one season for NBC. Yep. So this is from creator Matt Reeves of the Batman fam.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Ordinary Joe was centered on a character, Joe Kimbrough, as he makes uh, a pivotal life changing decision at his college graduation. And the audience then follows him on three parallel timelines, one as a police officer, another as a music star and then another as a nurse. And I understand this show. So, yeah, as you said, it finished its run after 13 episodes. But even to get that far on a traditional big network like NBC, it's a huge accomplishment. So bravo on that. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And big congratulations also being the lead on this kind of an ambitious, like sliding doors style narrative where you're playing multiple storylines every week. I mean, uh, what was the experience like playing the same character who's living out three
2: different timelines? You know, it was it was great but the reason you're hearing hesitation in my voice cuz it was the most physically and mentally exhausting thing i've ever done because three characters yeah. i didn't i didn't really like when i when i started the show when we did the pilot i didn't really anticipate how physically demanding and then emotionally demanding cuz you're playing the emotionality of three people that it would be um so we had like you know 16 hour days and and but that's with like the hair and makeup because there was a beard that was completely hand laid in oh, the middle boy. of the day. We would wow. take off for another character, so okay. So, the hard part we'll just break it up. The hard part was that, yeah. The beautiful part was that it was like a wonderful group of people. Um, mm. uh, uh, Garrett Friend and Russ uh, Garrett Lerner and Russell Friend, Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner actually Matt Reeves wrote the script like I think like 15 or 20 years ago and then oh, wow. never. Did anything with it besides writing it, maybe developing it, whatever. It was never made into a show. And then Garrett and Russ had a, a deal with, I believe, twentieth, or it was twentieth for NBC, or was it? I know the show was on NBC, but I forgot where their deal was. Anyways, they found this piece of material and then reinvented it. And so those were the the creators with Matt, phenomenal people. Um, you know, we had an amazing showrunner. Um, uh, we just, we had a really great group of people, great actors, and I loved making the show. It was really, um, you know, also like, I don't know how you feel, but I often think about that time in my life when I was 21, because believe it or not, they were able to make me look 21 for the first like <laughs> bit of the first pilot episode, but you meet this guy when he's 21 and he's at this crux in his life, well, what sh- should I do this? And does he go to the, does he, does he end up, you know, chasing love with this girl or does he end up pursuing his dream of music? And so, you know, especially as an artist, you think back on that time in your life where you're deciding what to do with your life. Hmm. So I really, I thought it was cool to investigate that. And so there were some things I loved about it. Um, and it was a it was a really interesting experience. Really interesting.
0: Now, I chatted with uh, Joe Tippett, a buddy of mine who worked with Kate Winslet on Mayor of Easttown.
2: And he noted uh, that- He's great. Uh, Joe is? Yeah, he's great. Actor. I don't know him personally, but he's great. I mean, I he, loved him. He was great on that. Yeah, he he is he's he's, he's a very talented dude. Um,
0: he he noted that Kate annotates and keeps notes in binders in her process, and I would imagine that doing ordinary Joe might require some heavy note taking to keep track of where the character is chronologically and emotionally. Did did you have to develop a new process in order to play that character?
2: Yeah, I did. I kept a journal and I kept like little tabs like pink, yellow, yeah. green. And like so the pink was the nurse. The yellow was, I think, the cop or blue was the cop and red was the rock star. But I I basically had little tabs so I could flip through on any day and like, look, OK, these are my given circumstances. This is a little bit of backstory. This is a little bit of emotional preparation, but it was different for each character. And because we weren't able to block shoot, I was playing multiple characters a day having that notepad was yeah. incredibly helpful because I could just flip to, okay, this, and then, you know, look, study it for a minute. And that would kind of put me in the mindset to go play that character in that moment. Because otherwise it would be impossible to keep track of.
0: That's, that's so cool. And did you have moments where you were like, oh shit, like I'm
2: like, Oh my I God, just, yes. I just,
0: I just did that. I, don't, I can't believe that we did all that. Or we're doing like three versions of the character in the same episode and we're shooting them
2: all. Maybe that's happening the same week. Oh, that was, yeah, the, the The train had left the station with that. I knew that we were shooting shit all over the place. But what blew me away mm-hmm. was that um, uh, I would I would be, like, on set, and I'd be like, well, he doesn't know this. He wouldn't do this. And then the, the showrunner would be like, well, no, he does. I'd be like, oh, my God, that's right. I was thinking about the nurse. I'm the cop. Of course he would do this. Because, like, yeah, they had yeah, experienced yeah. different versions of life with the different characters. So it was really uh, – it was challenging. It was very challenging. Uh, well, good for it was you, changing. man. That's hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: and 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 uh, and congrats again on a full on a full season of it. I think that's I think that's Thank a huge you. accomplishment. Thank so, you. So, so we met probably fifteen years ago, um, and we met in an wow. acting class uh, taught by a SAG Award winner, uh, Brad William Henke of Orange is the New, uh, the New Black and many other TV series and feature films. Uh, yes, Brad, tragically. Uh, passed away very suddenly last year in November, at the, only at the age of 56. Um, I talked a little bit about it on the end of last season on this show. Yeah. Uh, he was a very, very special teacher and incredibly talented actor. Yeah. And importantly, w- we were part of a very special crew of actors that were taking classes at a studio in North Hollywood. Um, maybe that's what all, you know what we should do? We should organize. We should organize a little Hanky Studio reunion to go do the picket, the picket line. I love that. I'll, I'm not gonna send an email about that. That would be super, yes, do super it, fun. Please, yes, yes, I would love that. So you had met Brad
2: working on a pilot, if I recall. Is that right? Yes, we we worked on a pilot together for ABC in 2008 called Solving Charlie.
0: Oh yeah, And right. I we remember,
2: we yeah. were we were co-stars on that pilot. Yeah, I remember the really, name. Yeah. Yeah, interesting enough my son's name is Charlie. Um I named him after the pilot. I'm just kidding. Um uh, 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 but he uh. uh yeah, we worked together on that pilot. We shot it in Georgia. Uh we shot it in Savannah, which was really cool, and we shot it in uh like Atlanta proper, and it was mm. like my yeah, it was crazy. It was very exciting. I was And and he you know. talked to you about his acting class. He must have. <laughs> Yeah, well, basically, we started the pilot and like right away, we noticed that the other one like loved the process, you know, and I was a bit younger than Brad. So I was really excited. Uh, He was both a co star and then kind of like a mentor, because he was like this older, he was young still, but he was older than me if I was at the time. 2008, believe it or not, I was 23. That's insane. Sure. And he, so he must've been 40. his 40s, maybe. Yeah, maybe 40. Which is like, yeah. And so not old, but at the time, like someone older than me. So we would start doing like, you know, there was these scenes. We'd go like, we'd go do like a moment. We would do the moment before thing that, you know, an actor does. And we'd go, we'd go do that in the hallway before the scene would start. And uh, I hadn't really had that experience doing that too much on a TV show at that point. So it was so cool, and we both realized we loved the process. And and then he said to me very casually one day, like after the, we finished the pilot, um, you should come to my class. Like come to my class in North Hollywood. I think at that time, right? It was in North Hollywood, right? Yeah, um, yeah, off Culver. No, what was it? On? Yeah, that's right. I think that, yeah.
0: you know there were. I, I bet there were a few iterations of where the studio was. I came into it, you know, sort of in the middle. Um, but it was at a. It was at a, a really fascinating sort of nondescript location that had like a small 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 theater yes and then and but then it sort of moved to another one a couple a building over and he built that one uh i don't know if he built the 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 previous one he may have but he put he built he put basically ended up with a different space that was office space in another building and he put in the seats and uh remember he wrote up his name on the wall just it was a small small sort of thrust uh, no stage really, except sort sort of just like a door to enter from the back of the room, yep, yep. I remember
2: that. then it kind of go down a little bit. did it yeah did it, it there, there
0: was yeah, pitch down with the seating. and um it, yeah, I mean, it was a it was an electric play. like the work that happened in there was that was know, cool people were on fire in there and, um, and he was on fire as a teacher. And, you know, he spoke about you before you joined the class. I remember that he said he was excited that you were going to join us. And he was, because, you know, he was very impressed with your talent and he could see that you were going to go far. And, you know, oh, and sweet. I don't know if you, I don't know if you were there for this, but he remarked at one point about you that you'd signed with a big agency,
2: maybe paradigm, like right, w- out, of d- co- d- right out of college. Um, I signed, I saw by the time that, um, by the time that we, I was in class, I basically two years out of college, I signed with WME.
0: Oh, there you go. Okay. Right. Yeah.
2: He, yeah. I
0: remember and, him saying, and well, but let me ask you this then, cause that's interesting. Was it WME or was it William Morris?
2: It was William Morris. No, no, it was Endeavor. It was Endeavor. Okay. It was Endeavor. Right. And then, and then. Yeah. That same year, Endeavor merged with William Morris. Okay, got it. Yeah, so that became WME. WME. Yeah. yeah. So he, I remember him saying at some
0: point, he was like, son, he was like, you should all try to sign with the biggest agency that you can. You know, which is a funny thing to say. I guess that's true. You know, I don't know that that is true. <laughs> I don't
2: know that's the best advice. How was
0: the? You know, it's it, it's true unless you don't book because I know people who've gone through that and then they get dropped. Um, if they don't book, but did you, you must've felt a lot of pressure then.
2: if you're coming out of school, you're Oh, signing- I, was, oh I, I felt so much pressure. I can't believe I didn't like, like have a mental breakdown in the middle of it. Yeah. I, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I was 23. I, I had no idea it was happening because I went from like, go, you know, when you get out of school, you're just like, well, someone please pay attention to me, like for the love of God. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, you're signed. I was signed by WME. So th- th- I, felt, I felt in an inordinate amount of pressure. Like, I wish I could go back to that 23-year-old and just be like, just chill. Like, just yeah, yeah. relax. Like, you don- you actually don't need to do anything different. Like, you just need to just keep doing what you do and just stay really calm. And, uh, yeah, I felt in an inordinate amount of pressure. How did you get introduced to the agents there? My manager who I've had now for 15 years. So wow. she, uh, that was like the big change like life change for me was career change for me. was meeting her because we met when I was 22. And at that time uh, I was with an agency out of New York and, um, but I didn't have a manager and I was, I came out here and a friend was temping for her and she's like, you should meet this manager. She's great. And she, you know, and so I met her and, and we just hit it off in the room and she was like, You should come to LA. You have friends here, like stay with them. I'll set up some reads for you. She's like, Because you know, it's hard. You're in New York and you're sending tapes to LA and like it's getting lost in translation. Meanwhile, all we do now is send tapes. Yeah. So that's that's right. it. So so that's interesting. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, that's we could have like a nine month oh, conversation could... about that. Every yeah. actor could have a nine month conversation about that. Yeah. That's but right. but she but she was like, Yeah, just come, spend some time. And so I, I I that's what that was the change for me as I came to LA. She set up some reads, um, some really fortunate things fell into place because of that. And then she was like, I I want you to take meetings. And one of them was with uh, Endeavor. Nice. Now you had gone to college and uh, you
0: were were, at UMish, is that right? I went to University of
2: Michigan. Yeah, I went to University of Michigan. Um, And I should say, just as long as we're talking about that story, an interesting thing is my first job when I had my manager, but I wasn't at one of those big agencies, I booked a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie yeah. playing a teacher with Tourette syndrome. Oh, and, I didn't know that part. Okay. And that was like the sink or swim for me, because obviously if you don't do that well or realistic playing Tourette's, people will be like, this is the worst actor, please step aside. But mm-hmm. we did the movie and it was kind of embraced by the Tourette's community. They, they it was based on a true story and it was, a beautiful story that I was fortunate to be a part of about a teacher who wanted to become a teacher who had Tourette's and it was in the nineties in the South and no one wanted to hire him. Anyways, that movie was, was what kind of became like a little bit of the calling card for me. Um, that's, that's fascinating.
0: Cause I was going to ask you about this. So this was a hallmark movie called front of the class. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And it had a great cast and it included Patricia Heaton and also, uh Treat Tree Williams, Williams who, who yeah. also just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Also, tragically, and you know Tragically. He he was a wonderful actor and supposed to be yes. great to work with. And yes. I would imagine, did you have some fond memories of working with him?
2: I you know what? We he played my dad, and we it was really nice. It was really fun playing uh with him as his son. And he was great. He was like a total pro. Um and I, he was just, you know, nice, good guy. Um, you know, we didn't like, you know, sometimes you'll hang with actors off set. He was kind of like, he, you know, he probably had a family. He was busy. So like after work, he'd go home and just do his thing and relax. But when we were on set, it was great. And and he he brought a like a real like passion and spark for the work. And it was really fun to see him do his thing. And he had like an immense amount of charisma like an immense yeah. amount of charisma, like just kind of like seeped off of him. Um, so I was really sad to hear yeah. about his passing, but also shocked. Cause I was yeah, like, oh, he's was young. I, when he passed, I was like, wait a minute, he's so young. And then I realized it was, it was like a motorcycle accident. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's crazy. And, and so sad. Way too soon. Way, way, way too, too soon. soon. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: so, okay. So then since then, since that first project you've become well known for arcs on shows like happy endings and billions you also played politician joe keen on hbo's emmy award-winning Watchmen series um and uh which you did great by the way it was fantastic Um, oh thank you thank you i feel like your first i feel like your first big pop culture moment was playing this character bob benson the mysterious new addition to Sterling Draper Cooper Price. Sterling Cooper Draper Price. I can't remember on the Uh, the, something like that. Yeah, something like that on the prestige uh, AMC series Mad Men, which (laughs) spawned the Pete Campbell, Bob Benson. Not great, Bob. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Great line. Great meme, great scene.
0: (laughs) There were many questions about the Bob Benson character. Uh, as audiences were sort of hunting for hidden meanings in the show. And, you know, I remember people wondered if Bob might be the guy throwing himself off the New York City skyscraper in the opening credits. Oh, Um, yeah. There
2: was like, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: Others saw Bob as like another Don Draper type who was sort of eager to climb the ladder on his wits and charm in the ad world. Do you remember this conversation that started to circle around this character? Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a conversation on the creative side about giving add, adding a sort of a certain mystique to the character? What, what was the direction? Did they did they say this is a this is another sort of Don Draper type who's sort of coming up
2: in the nothing? They said nothing. I knew really? nothing. I knew nothing as I was playing the character, which is probably why it was so mysterious. I knew nothing. I not only did I know nothing, I. I, I can say this. I, I didn't watch Mad Men until I didn't watch Mad Men. So some people will be like, oh, my God, that's what a What an idiot I doesn't watch Mad Men. I mean, there's great shows that all of us have not watched. So whatever. I never huh. watched Mad Men. And so um, I, now I have, of course. But at that time, when I came on, it was like five seasons in. And I just I don't know. I was I watched other shows. Um, I know how amazing the writing is now. And I watched the show and I love all those actors. But truth be told, I didn't know the show and I didn't know exactly who I was playing. And I think those two things combined were the perfect recipe to play someone who was like the talented Mr. Ripley because I had no idea what was going on. So I would get the lines. I was like, "Well, yeah. this this seems like odd. Like there's something that he I mean, I created a character in my mind. It's not like I like, you know, I did what you do as an actor. You put together a story in your own mind and you fill in the blanks so that you can play it from a place of of understanding and, you know, coming in with meaning but I, they didn't I didn't know much at all so
0: so for example like did you you're so now you're on the show you've you've you got the job do you know you do, do you have any idea how many episodes you're doing
2: no okay I, so it's I, not I, one of those I they said they did say this is a new character this season so I, I knew it wasn't like a one-off I knew yeah. there was going to be a few episodes but I didn't know what it was building towards and I'm did not sure that they knew. I I, I honestly feel like in Matt Weiner could answer this question better than I could. And I would never want to put words in his mouth because he's an incredible writer and had a huge vision for his show. But I feel like they also did this cool thing where the writers watch how things are developing and then kind of wrote on what worked for them or maybe what excited them. Okay. Did you get,
0: did you, you so you book it, do you go back and watch everything before you show up the first day?
2: No. Interesting. No. I, I, I watched, I watched an episode so that I knew the tone. Yeah. Um, but again, I think that really suited the character because here comes this guy into this office. He doesn't know the dynamics. He doesn't know that Don Draper is the way he is. He doesn't know that Peggy is the way she is. And, you know, uh, Sterling is the way he is. Like, I mean, so for me coming in and kind of in the moment, figuring it out worked for the character. Right.
0: Yeah, I I think it did. I mean, I think the thing that I recall, and it was so great seeing you on that show, it was like, I said, like, Jimmy's got this, like, twinkle in his eye. There's this twinkle going on in his eye. And I think, like, you know, that may be just part of who you are. And it lended itself really nicely to a show in which nothing is really what it seems. Yeah. You know, yeah, so I think that you. I think that it works nicely because I think it allowed the audience to sort of as they were wont to do with that show, which was like read into everything. And so I right. think with that little twinkle in your eye, people were like, this dude is up to no good. You know? Totally. Always with the coffee cup. Did they ever tell you, like, did you start to get a thing about like, oh, I've got to have the, the the coffee cup. Or were they were they saying like, oh, uh, Jimmy, don't forget your coffee cup. They said come
2: the in with a with the coffee cup. I don't know what I don't know what the hell was going on. They <laughs> they said, like, come in with a coffee cup. And uh, I swear to God, I think I was just confused. So I like came in holding it like this. Like, what the what the hell am I supposed to do with these? And then again, I think that, like, informed something of like, oh, well, he should be coming in with coffee. Um, Again, it may have been more premeditated on their part, but if it was, it wasn't discussed with me. So I was just going off of what I could do in the moment. But I have a funny coffee cup story that we'll get to when we, it's regarding Bob Benson, but I don't want to jump on it. But yeah, I I don't know what the coffee cup thing was. Oh, I think you should go for it. I'll, I most likely will forget. Okay. So (laughs) this is how, this is how much I didn't know what was going on. So I met my, at that time, I was living in an apartment in Santa Monica and I believe it was in the middle of shooting that season and um, all of a sudden uh, a little uh, package comes to the apartment and, and in the package there's nothing, there's no notes, there's nothing. And then I take open the package and it was one of those little New York coffee cups. That has the writing on it, it says, I forget what does it say in it. Thank you, or like oh yeah, right. But but it's that cup that Bob's always walking around with the Gre- the Greek uh, figures. The on Greek, it. the Greek figures on it. Right. And to show you how much I was unaware of how important that coffee was, the cup came to the house. It was it was all it was like had the Greek features on it, and it was nothing. There was nothing. There was no no, there's nothing. I thought, I was like, this is weird. Like this, whoever sent this to me. I didn't even affiliate, I didn't even associate it with Mad Men. I didn't know. So I was like, someone sent me a coffee cup? There's no name? Like, what do they think? I'm an idiot? I'm not going to drink out of this <laughs> cup. I'm not going to drink out of this cup. And I took the cup and I threw it in the trash. And then my wife came. And then at the time, were we engaged yet? Not yet. So my girlfriend, now wife, she comes up She go, and I go, you won't believe it just happened. I got this insane cup. Like, it's insane. And, and, and I, it's like a coffee cup and there's no note. She's like, well, let me see. So she comes down to the parking garage and we look in the dumpster. She opens up, she pulls out. She's like, you are a nut job. She goes, this is the coffee cup that you've been drinking out of on Mad Men. It's obviously from them. And I was like, you're right. And I had no idea. Oh, my God. Now, wait a minute. Is this one, of, because they do these in ceramic. So did they ceramic. send you-
0: It was a really nice uh, ceramic. Okay, okay.
2: And it was from them. And it was like. This and, it was, sweet- and there was no note? No, no. Now, let me ask you.
0: where. Yeah, so let me ask you this, though. This is interesting. Where in the timeline was this? Had you finished all your episodes?
2: And Jay would remember better than I would. I have a really, really poor memory. Um, I feel like we had just finished shooting or were just shy of finishing shooting. So I should have known about the coffee cup. I should have known. It
0: it was obviously, you know, a sort of a form of endearment. It was a form of endearment yeah yeah um but it also speaks to the 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 mystery of the character and of the uh i i i'd love that i think that's fantastic i you know uh you know similarly it's like the end of like the soprano series there are moments on that show where it's like you're you're it is it is sort of open to debate and that yes. particularly the, the finale and um yes 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 it's 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 really fun, I think, because I, I don't watch as much science fiction as I do adult dramas, but I like adult dramas where there are strange questions being posed, you know, and I mm. that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. So I think that's that's a, what a fantastic funny thing that happened. Um, so Crazy. So uh, and they shot that whole series on film, right, mm-hmm. if I recall. So you're really mm-hmm. trying to get it right on that first take, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, I I believe you're right. I believe they shot the whole thing on film. Um, Because that's expensive. I I believe you're correct. I, you know, I remember just also being, I remember being a little nervous on the show because it was like, I knew that it was a phenom. You know, I knew that I was joining something pretty special. And so I was like, "Ah, I want to do a good job, you know? Um, So, yeah, I remember that. But everyone was so um, wonderful, like, like, like john slattery john ham um they were yeah. just great they're great and they were directing episodes by then the actors were directing so that was cool slattery was directing episodes ham was directing episodes it was cool. that's great Yeah, you know, one of the yeah. one of my favorite parts of the show was actually
0: the casting of robert morris um as Bert mm. Coop, as burt cooper the head of the agency um it's a it dovetails nicely with his career because he Became known for playing this character, Jay Pierpont Finch, in a 1960s musical called How to Succeed in Business Without Really right. Trying. Right. Right. And in that storyline, it's about a young guy who sort of sneaks his, literally sneaks his way into an ad agency and uh, tries, works his way up to, I think, vice president of something, of a department. And here on this show, which also takes place in the 1960s, you have Robert Morse showing up as the head of an ad agency.
2: And um, he,
0: he, he could sing and dance really well, Robert Morse. Sure could. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, he gets to do that a little bit in, like, one of those very final episodes where he sort of appears a, a post-posthumously uh, as the yes. character. And yes. he does a little song and dance. And... You know, and when you go back and watch How to Succeed, I, I I got to do that show when I was in high school, and I think, you know, I remember watching his performance and studying it, and I think, you know, one of the things that he, he's got a little bit of a Jerry Lewis look to him, and a little <laughs> bit of that style, too. It's very sort of like, Hua! like, it's sort of fun and uh-huh. big, and, uh, you know, almost, uh, it's sort of theatrical. And here he comes in as Burt Cooper, and it's very, like, it's very I steady. It's very filmic. Um, I thought it was such a wonderful tribute. To his career with these bookends of that being sort of the beginning of his career, and then this being one of the one of the last projects, um, that He did, you know, yeah, um, lovely, esse-
2: lovely essence. His whole essence was so.
3: It just, seemed.
0: It seemed yeah. like it, and I loved that character and all the sort of the the Eastern influences that he had taken on and the, his yes. You know, outlook and very 1960s the costumes and the production design were precise down to the details did did it feel like you experienced does it feel now like you experienced the 1960s yes
2: yes, yes. i knew I, I i interrupted you with yes because i knew where you were going with that because the answer is 100 yes like yeah the set was unbelievable like if there was life magazine sitting on the coffee table in you know um peggy's office or whatever it was uh it it was a real life magazine from that year and you know everyone was smoking the the herbal cigarettes on set you know they weren't real cigarettes but they were herbal cigarettes I came up stinking stinking from set but you felt like oh yeah like in the costuming um the costume designer won I she won a costume design award the year that we did it season six or seven yeah and she uh Janie Um, Her last name just gave me. She's amazing. Everything. The costuming, the the set design. It was impeccable. It was incredible. Really cool. Really cool to be part of it. Yeah, it was special. So now you
0: were also the lead in a CBS sci-fi series that ran for three seasons uh, called Zoo, which was based on a best-selling novel from James Patterson and Michael Ledwidge. Congratulations on the run of that show. Yeah, thank you. And... uh, you co starred with Kristen Connolly, who is now married to my buddy uh, Steve O'Reilly. And I, I actually attended their wedding last year when no. was in Ireland. Yeah.
2: No way. I, <laughs> I, I met Steve. Great yeah. guy. He's great a great guy. guy. Yeah. And I met them when they had their first baby. I went to go see their, their, their baby and I met him. They were doing the mom dad thing. I love Kristen. I love yeah. Kristen.
0: Yeah, she's great, and I got to uh, meet her family. A little. She's she's got a great, great, uh, they're bo- and they're both great folks. Great family. It was yeah. uh, it was a really really special uh, trip, and
2: uh, uh, yeah, and I, I should I should see if, if she would like to come on and do this. Um, she's amazing. She has a brother named Jimmy, and sometimes I'll get texts that are meant for him, and I'll <laughs> and I'll respond like like in character, and she loves that. Oh,
0: I love that's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Very sweet. Um, now, maybe one of the highest achievements I think a person could have in show business um, is knowing or working with the late, great Robin Williams.
2: Mm. Uh,
0: and you were a co-star in on one of his final projects, along with uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar in the TV series, The Crazy Ones. Um, do you mind talking a little bit about what it was like working with Robin?
2: Yeah, it was great. It was Robin, Sarah Michelle, an incredible actor named Hamish Linklater, sure, um, yeah. and Amanda Seton, who became a great friend. It was a great cast. There was five of us on that, but Robin obviously led the cast. Written by David E. Kelly, incredible. Right. So it was like it was like uh, David E. Kelly and Robin Williams on one heavy side. hitters, yeah, heavy hitters and um that was amazing that was amazing i don't i don't know where to begin with that you know from the moment i met robin because i i auditioned with him they auditioned a few actors I that mean, was gonna probably, be my yeah that was gonna be my first question could you talk a little bit about that audition yeah uh i was at so i remember that i was gonna uh, screen test with robin and you know it was so honored to even get to that point which was ridiculous and uh so he came to, so I was there early. I think I was going to be like the first actor that read with where, him. And there was a,
0: where was it? Like where Fox. were you? It was okay. at Fox,
2: like in the casting center of Fox. And um, I'm waiting in the lobby and the, you know, they say, oh, well, Robin will be here soon. So I'm sitting down and all of a sudden, like the elevator opens up and Robin comes out and he's wearing, I think he's wearing like a beret, something very Robin Williams. And hmm. and he comes out and I by the way I do the worst Robin Williams impersonation but he's like oh hello he's like uh <laughs> it's not he's bad like, yeah it's, it's he, in, he goes, in the oh, ballpark where, where am I going and, and like he didn't know where he was going because he you know he, he was just so unassuming there's like oh you're going over there he's like oh great so we had like a moment before and then when I was in the room with him he was so giving and like gracious and like what you could feel that he wanted you to succeed. He made you feel so comfortable, which some people in that position don't do and or care to do or want to do. They want to do the opposite. You know, it's like a power move, maybe. Um, He's not like that. And he, he was the opposite of that. He was so gentle and empowering. And, and so the audition was so much fun. He was so great. I felt really at ease. And then when I got the news that I got the role, I was elated. And then I got to work with him for I think that year we worked together like eight months, like wow. five days a week, five days holy, a week for eight months on, on set with him. Yeah. What did you What did I,
0: you learn? What did you learn about the man? A couple of things um, that are that you you think about still, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, I I mean, what I absolutely learned is like, like the genius because we throw around that word a lot you know, everyone throws around that word. And I'm sure there's, there's, I'm sure they're, they're referring to people who are genius, not taking that away from anyone, but he really embodies that. Like when you, when you say the genius of Robin Williams, it's there because his ability to be funny on the, on the drop of a dime and then be emotional and be real. And, um, it showed me that was when I realized that dramatic acting didn't have to be like white knuckling, like searching for this emotion, because I think I had always fallen into that trap in my, in my career until that point of like, this is a serious role. This is a serious scene. And I got to prepare and make it serious. And I would see Robin like be loose on set and kind of joking around with people. And then he would walk into a scene, even though we did a comedy that was a comedy, there was these amazing moments of, of, of sincerity and connection in that. And he would drop into those moments as easily as he would go into the comedy. And then I realized, oh, he's actually – his trick is actually staying loose. So when he's joking around on set and he's being loose and he's – that's actually – that's for him as well because he's keeping his body loose. He's keeping his tension, his muscles loose. And then he's he has access to all these great deep emotions. And so they kind of changed the way I approached drama even though I worked on him with a com- for, as a comedy for eight months. It was like a masterclass in acting and it changed the way that I approached trauma. I didn't feel like I need to force anything. I felt like, Oh, I can just kind of walk into it and be present and be honest. And that that was a hundred percent from watching him a hundred percent.
0: Yeah. That's lovely. I think I had heard that about him from his experience. I think there was a little like uh Maybe it was like a commentary on his photo, uh, on his film, one hour photo. And I think they were mm. saying, somebody was sort of talking about, maybe, I don't know if it was the director but they were saying, they showed a little bit of him and it was like in between clips, he's making people crack up yes. and, and then, you know, he drills right back down into that character that's so uh that character Saul as I recall who if I
2: remember yes I'm not remembering that yeah correctly. like because he played didn't he play like a he played like a crazy person he played like, a creep, a so, creep. Like, yeah a creep <laughs> like a like a sociopathic creep yeah what was your
0: favorite uh before you met him like what were a couple of your favorite
2: uh Robin Williams movies uh without a doubt his role in Good Will Hunting without a yeah. doubt yeah like yeah. like what like what i don't even know i want to re-watch it now to see what he was doing there like it's just uh they just sprang from such a well of truth and like yeah moving like you're moved when you're watching him uh which is like uh he was just something in there just was an unbelievable um dead poet society yeah um uh good morning vietnam yeah um uh I mean, you know, just the, yeah, those dramatically, those are the ones that really I feel like of God, yeah, there's so many great ones, yeah, what about you? What about you? Um,
0: those ones that you mentioned, um, I would say hook is like a big one from like when I was oh, a kid, shit. you know um, yes, hook. I remember watching on uh, Nick at night, I would watch like Mork and Mindy. So but that was sort of like, I think yeah. the first time that I was aware. And, um, you know, but then, you know, it'd be like a scene in something like Mrs. Doubtfire where it's him and Sally Field and they're talking about their kids. And it's sort of well into the story where now it's become the legal proceedings about custody and you could see him switch gears in a movie that is, you know, a lot of things and ridiculous being one of them. Um, yeah funny of course but like there but you know but then you know there would be a moment in there that would be very sort of like oh he's a like he's a dad in this in in a particular way right now he's a he's like um. there's a lot of that character was sort of childlike and yet there was this sort of moment where he sort of snaps into an adult's conversation. And it's you know, and it's that it comes from that, I think that sort of thing that you're talking about from Goodwill Hunting too, where it's like it comes from that place of um um there's a there's a sort of um sadness? a grown manness of it all that
2: I think yeah yeah. yeah. Oh and, and, I, a sad, I mean, and a sadness. There was like a sadness in some of those like like in the, the Goodwill hunting um in Mrs. Downfire like there's like a beauty and then there's a heartbreaking thing about his characters too, which obviously, yeah. you know. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there it, it was an interesting thing because it was like, he, we lost him and we lost Phil Hoffman and we lost James Gandolfini and they all, it all happened at a around, I would say like, if I'm getting the, if I'm remembering this correct, it was within about a year or two. And, you know, I just felt like with the three of them, having passed it was it was i i had to i remember just feeling like i you know i cry about robin williams and i would imagine that you've had these moments where it's like you think about what a loss that is and um with all three of them you know and i remember thinking like man i don't know anymore like what who do, who to look at you know or who to look up to in terms of yeah. you know um i know these these incredible uh performers and uh but, uh, you know, and, I, and I, I guess I, you know, I'm not sure where you were in the timeline of his illness, for example. Like, was that something that, you know, was, was that part of the time that you were spending with him that that happened?
2: I wasn't aware of it. I mean, I think obviously it clearly was because, you know, his his too soon passing happened. I, I think the summer. What, what do we have the date that he passed away? Was it fall? Let me, I can find out. Cause that, but whatever it was, I would be interested to know that date actually, but we, I was with him six months before doing the show. So at absolutely he, he, he had been, and I came to find out afterwards, he had been diagnosed while we were shooting the show. Um, Yeah. He had been diagnosed with a disease known as Lewy body dementia. And he he passed in August, 2014. End of the summer. That's right. So we finished shooting that show. I believe that spring. And so, yeah, he had to have known. He did know. And I think, you know, obviously, you can't get inside his head. But I think that was a devastating diagnosis to him. Um, And yet, I was with him every day and didn't know. So he was, you know, I mean, I can't imagine the isolation he must have felt having Mm -hmm. to show because i just watched that documentary still with michael j fox i don't know if you've seen that oh yeah yet. tom i i gotta get yeah oh you for a million reasons that's like like you would just so appreciate and connect with what's happening him. there yeah i love him. and based on your like you know interviewing style and your deep pathos for people and everything you would just that that documentary you'll love him in it but anyways you hear about the isolation that he had
1: you know, having yeah.
2: Parkinson's and then doing spin city and all that. It's like, I think of Robin, he was had this yeah. diagnosis yet. He's the star of the show. He has to show up every day and deliver. And we didn't know, you know, I, um, there was one beautiful moment on set, which I feel like I can totally openly speak about because it's my experience with him where um, we were on set. It was me. It was Amanda and Hamish. And there was this song um Remember that song? It's like, and if you close your eyes, oh, oh, it's like nothing changed at all. It was a huge song of 2013. It was like the biggest song. Ah. It was by Bastille. Bastille.
0: Uh, I remember the name Bastille. On any given year, if you ask me about a pop culture, like a hit on the charts, I probably would not know it. But all right. So,
2: yeah. So, so it was the lyrics are, if you close your eyes, it's like nothing changed at all. And I, I was super into that. I, this is something I do obnoxiously and sad. status. I play songs for people. Like I'll just bring my phone over and be like, I love this song. You got to hear this song with no regard for their process or where they are, if they're trying to prepare for a scene. <laughs> and so I played it for, um, Amanda and Hamish and either Robin was there or I played it for him because I, you know, I always wanted to give him his space. He's Robin Williams. I wouldn't like run up and put an iPhone in his face, so right. was, you know, but he heard it and he came over and we all held hands And I don't know if it's because he grabbed our hands and I looked over and he was uh, like, his eyes were closed and, and he was like a tear was like coming down his face. And the, the words were, if you close your eyes, it's like nothing changed at all. And I often think back on the timing of us all holding hands with that lyric and that song and what he was going through. That was like, when I think back a revealing moment of what he was experiencing. Wow. That's incredible. We had no idea what he was experiencing. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, this is a really interesting, this is a beautiful song, and this is a really moving uh, reaction that he's having to it. And now I think there was more meaning behind that than I even realized. It's lovely that he had a group of folks that he was enjoying working with. That makes that very clear. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, that's thank you for sharing that stuff. He's yeah. A, a hero to so many of
2: us, right? Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah.
0: So, so next up, you're you're appearing opposite uh, another legendary actor. Um, or no, you're you're no, you worked with a, another legendary actor, Mr. George Clooney, in his film yeah. "The Boys in the Boat." Yes. Um, this film tells a the triumphant, true underdog story of the University of Washington's men's rowing team, who stunned the world by winning gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Um, congratulations on that. Thank you so excited
2: about that one and where did you where did you end up shooting that uh film well it's you know obviously uh about the university of washington rowing team we shot the whole thing in england
0: yeah that's what that was gonna be <laughs> yeah. my question
2: did you shoot in england yeah we shot in london and then on the thames river because that was obviously we needed a body of water to shoot on it's a rowing movie And um, we shot in the Thames, we shot uh, in the Cotswolds, like up in the country where the Thames goes back into the city. And we shot it for three and a half months in London. Jesus
0: Christ. That sounds, that sounds pretty dope. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it was. Uh, Yeah. Yeah.
0: uh, Had you, had you been to England before?
2: No, I haven't been abroad much at all in my life. So that was, my wife and I went on our honeymoon to Italy, which was like the first time I had ever been abroad. That's a great one. uh, So this was, thanks. Very excited. Great. Right. Um, And so this is my first time living abroad for an extended period of time. And it was very cool. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So when I mentioned uh, that you were in a George Clooney movie, my, my wife, Catherine, who, you know, was like, finally, which is really funny because anecdotally, all of us over at the Hankey studio, we used to talk behind your back about how we were like this guy. Kind of looks, he looks like Clooney, you know, and, you know, maybe you've gotten this from other people, Uh, you know, you're both sort of, you you both have these leading man characteristics and uh, you're both very hard to look at, you and George. I'm sorry about that. But those are the breaks. Those are the breaks, Joe. Those are the
2: breaks. Those are the breaks.
0: Uh, You're just unlucky, I guess. Um, So, uh, you know, had you been told that by other people was this, did you, is this something you were aware of when you, when you got the call, uh, that you'd booked this I
2: Booked the movie? Well, that's so kind of you to say, thank you. Um, uh, I, you know, I have heard that on and off throughout the years. Like people have said that, which is obviously like the world's greatest compliment, uh, because I'm, you know, he's like you said, he's a pretty, pretty cool guy. But again, you know, uh, that, that's all I took it as is like a comparison. Do you, I think, once... do you think that he was aware of it at all?
0: Do you think anybody was like, this guy kind of reminds us of a younger you in this way or that
2: know. blah blah blah? I don't know. He never if if he was, he never mentioned it to me. And I certainly wasn't gonna mention it to him. By the way, amazing guy to work for. And I guess but, you never um... want to be I also guess you never want to be told like this person reminds us of a younger you, not when you're uh, like mean, a movie I, star. I, no, I I was certainly not broaching the subject. And he was amazing he was amazing but the one thing i'll say is it's funny one time they we did he did a movie this is before i did this movie with him which i'm very excited about and he was you know so, he didn't act in this one he just directed it he right. was an inc- incredible director but i auditioned to play a young him in a movie he did like 5 years ago uh Midnight uh Midnight Sky i think it's called Midnight Sky really cool movie where there's like a flashback element and I auditioned to play a young him and I didn't get the role. And I remember I was like, I was I was like, oh, that hurts because I have been told in the past that there's like this comparison. Um, but everything happens for a reason because uh, who knows if, if I would have gotten that if I would have gotten the chance to do this with him which was uh, incredible.
0: Yeah. 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 This yeah. sounds like a really great project. Can you, is there anything you can talk
2: about with this project? yeah, I can totally talk about it because you know boy the boys in the Boat is based on the book, which is the true story. So the book is is uh, historical um, is 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 nonfiction um, and and it's historical and it's true. It's about this 1930s rowing team of these boys during the Great Depression that need room and they need board because they have nowhere to stay and they have nothing to eat. And a lot of them just come to this rowing team to get room and board. So it's like, not these aren't like elite rowing athletes with silver spoons in their mouth, but they end up beating Yale, they end up beating Harvard, they end up going to the 1936 Olympics and beating, I believe it was 1936 Olympics before word was really out that Hitler and the Nazis were terrible anti-Semites. I think the word was about, but the, you know, the, the Holocaust hadn't happened yet. And World War II. There was hadn't talk of
0: nationalism and things like that. There was talk
2: of the, these things. The scapegoating was coming. Right. But, but at that point, this stuff hadn't happened. World War II was not a thing. And so you, the cool thing about this book too is they go and they beat the Germans when Hitler's in power in 1936, they beat them in a rowing. So they right. beat Yale, they beat Harvard, they beat the Germans. It's this maze it's like Hoosiers or miracle underdog sports team Um, But it's about, you know, 1936 rowers from the University of Washington. And it was made into a book. Um, The book was incredible. I read the book about nine years ago. And um, and then I was just got so fortunate to be cast in in this film. That's so Um, incredible. Yeah. That you'd you'd read it already. Read it. And at the time said to my it was probably the same year that I smashed the coffee cup. I said to my girlfriend, now wife, um, I said, this would be. The most amazing movie. I was like, Holy I, moly. I, I, I was like, this would be the most amazing movie, and I'm in no position to option it, but it's gonna be the most amazing movie. So when I heard that they were casting it, um, I was like, I I I need to get a read for this. This is this is so exciting. And oh, is um, that
0: right? Did you did you put feelers out on this one?
2: Yeah. Th- this oh, one good i for I, you. I pursued. And I don't always do that. I don't know why. Um whatever the mental processing is behind that. But this one I was like, what what is there in this? What roles are there? Like what what's what are they doing? Where is this going? I I want to be part of this. And I feel so lucky and fortunate. This was like a bucket list on so many levels, working with George, um, being a part of this narrative that's such a beautiful story. Um and um and then what I didn't anticipate was how wonderful all the actors on it were Joel Adgerton, a A group of really amazing, yeah, real wonderful actor. Um and just had a great time shooting it as well
0: you're you are one of the quote boys in the boat you're rowing
2: you're rowing crew or no i i'm the coach i'm so there's two coaches oh, cool. nice. i'm not i'm not the coach joel uh edgerton plays um Al, albriksen who's the head coach and i play God. tom Bowles, who's who's albriksen assistant coach assistant coach um and so i play one of the coaches yeah that's so awesome, the, man. And, you know, it's funny. Age is funny because some people play younger and some people play older. So some of the rowers that played the collegiate rollers weren't that much younger than me, but they mm-hmm. just play younger and I play up. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. It was really it was really fun. And we saw I mean, I'm just I'm really excited for this one to come out. Yeah. You've come. Well, but I hope that film does. You
0: know, I, I, my guess is that that one is the kind of a movie that might be up for some award consideration. So
2: I'm very excited for you on that. Thanks. Um, Thanks so much. Do you, do you have any idea when it's going to be coming out? Yeah, they have a release date. So it's coming out December. It's coming out Christmas day.
0: Oh, hell yeah. I don't know
2: why I just tried to figure out like, like to set like the date instead of just saying Christmas day. Um, (laughs) And so it's coming out Christmas day, which is exciting. It's going to get a theatrical release um nice and uh yeah so was shaving it for christmas awesome dude well jimmy you typically have a very very busy schedule especially
0: being a dad uh and you're traveling this week uh, i just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to catch up with me this has been so great reconnecting with you and um yeah i mean i hope we get to work together on something at some point but uh, it's always inspiring watching your career i wish you and your family continued happiness and good health thanks jimmy
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. So fun.
0: Well, there you have it. My conversation with Jimmy Wolk. A big thank you again to Jimmy for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcasts from today. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Melissa Fumero, Baron Vaughn, Chantal Tui, Patrick Adams, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me and you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on our Instagram at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings reviews and kind words, and we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Daria Politan. We talk about our education at BU and Columbia growing up in Massachusetts. We chat about our Middle Eastern heritage in addition to her involvement with the WGA's newly formed Middle Eastern Writers Committee. We recorded Daria's interview during the writer strike, and I've been sitting on it till they got their deal. And Daria wanted me to preface that a statistic about the number of Middle Eastern identifying screen and TV writers is actually even smaller at just 0.3% of all WGA writers. We also talk about her work as a TV showrunner. Here now is the extremely accomplished and brilliant Daria Politan all right so first of all i want to say uh, big congratulations to you uh your netflix series devil in ohio quickly became the number one netflix series in the world when it debuted last september it was in the top 10 netflix shows in 84 countries It was number two on the Nielsen streaming chart after The Rings of Power on Prime. The following week, it was number two after Netflix's other hit series, Cobra Kai, with billions of minutes streamed. Uh, That must be such a wonderful feeling of satisfaction still.
3: It is. It's nice to hear you say that. (laughs) I (laughs) forgot. (laughs) It's nice to be reminded of, uh, you know, things that I... And many people worked so hard on. Uh, were 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 so widely received, and we were really, um, moved and excited to be able to share the show. You know, and just having access to you know viewers around the world immediately, um, you know, uh, was really really exciting and, um. To be able to, you know, engage with viewers uh, on Twitter and, you know, I'd, I'd never pressed translate tweet so many times, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just like getting to see and have um, conversations with people around the world uh, was really exciting. So yeah, it was really, it was a thrill.
0: That's awesome. I think that this is, this is still quite new, I think, for a lot of us who were getting into the entertainment business, this idea that I think we had an understanding. It's like if you do a project in the states, you know, if it becomes like a runaway hit, at some point maybe it'll go over to like the UK or you know. But with Netflix, it's this—it's uh, global immediately, and so it gives this extraordinarily, I get a- exponential ability to to reach so many people at the same time, right?
3: Yeah, it's really—it it is really unique and. and- I mean becoming less unique but like the like you said like you know something had to be a success and then get sold in another territory and you know you tell someone about it in Canada and they were like oh I, I don't have that I can't find that show you know yeah. um but um actually Jack I worked on Jack Ryan I've worked on the first mm-hmm. two seasons of Jack Ryan and that was one of their first really big scripted shows that they really did like you know global marketing and I remember seeing my sister lives in London and she you know showed me the front of the newspaper and it had you know, <laughs> jack you know John Krasinski's face on it I was like oh my gosh this is wild you it's know incredible. because it was pretty much day and date um maybe an hour I, like the hour it was like the next day or something very close but um pretty close to, uh, to when it launched here if not at the same time I don't remember exactly but um yeah, that was my first experience of it. And, um, and it is really exciting to all, you know, consume and process a story at the same time and interact with each other. Uh, it, it's, it's very exciting. It can be a really, um, a, a, a real added, additive experience as a viewer to, um, mm. to be so engage, engaged in something that's global.
0: Right. I mean, it, it, right, totally. I think that these communal experiences that we enjoy, uh, we're, they, they don't just happen in, in a movie theater. They happen when people are home watching Game of Thrones. But we go back. We remember the end of The Sopranos, the end of Sex in the City, and these moments where people were all watching at the same time, and um, you know, or the, just recently with uh, Succession. Um, so I watched Devil in Ohio. Uh, I really enjoyed the story. Uh, Loved the casting. Uh, I enjoyed the slow burn creepiness and the jump scares. Uh, It reminded me a little of a dramatic, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt with (laughs) an extra sinister twist. Um, May, the teenage daughter of a cult leader uh, with an inverted pentagram carved into her back shows up in an Ohio hospital uh, her case sparks the interest of hospital psychiatrist Dr. Suzanne Mathis, played by the wonderful Emily Deschanel of Bones fame. We've actually had a couple of Bones cast members on this podcast. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, Dr. Mathis offers to put May up in her home while looking for a suitable foster family. The series also featured music from a previous th- Things Are Going Great For Me guest, our wonderful friend Faye Wolfe.
3: Oh, I went to school with Faye, as did Emily.
0: Right. I think I knew that, too. Right. And so Faye contributed some original songs for your series. Uh, loved the music on the series, too. Loved the opening uh, title song. Uh, all of it. Um, Thank folks you. We can, worked
3: very hard on that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, It's really good. Uh, folks can check out Faye's interview in episode 23 along yet Uh, alongside yet another of our mutual friends and star of another Netflix series, Zibby Allen of uh, Virgin River fame. Mm -hmm. So then things start to evoke more of a, like a single white female sort of a plot when May begins uh, usurping Suzanne's own daughter, Jules, at her school paper and starts flirting with Jules's crush. Uh, And there's a particularly great scene where both girls decide to dress like Stephen King's Carrie for a high school (laughs) Halloween party. Um, I I loved the balance or or the exploration of how, you know, who's supporting who in the family can ebb Mm. and flow. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed the tension of when Peter's house flip falls through and the resentment, he has resentment towards Roseanne and how that adds to the tension between the teenage girls It all builds really well. Uh, And we learn more about Suzanne processing her own trauma from her abuse from a a sociopathic stepfather uh, and dealing with her own survivor's guilt um, and her feeling like she needs to rescue everyone. Everything came to a head very dramatically. Um, So this was based on your young adult suspense novel of the same name. Yes. And I understand you were inspired by the true story of a teenage girl who escaped from a cult and moved in with her psychiatrist's family.
3: Yes, um, the, the the true story was told to me by uh, my producer, uh, by a friend of hers, and um, they wanted to remain anonymous. And so um, we, we took the bones of the story uh, and then, you know, made it into our own from there. So it's not any kind of biography and it is based no. on a true story, but, um, you know, we let, we creatively, we didn't want to be, you know, held back by anything and we, we, we let our versions of the story be what, what it is. And, um, and it's gone through a, a couple of different um, iterations. You know, the book was uh, a YA book and it was told through the point of view mostly of Jules, the daughter. Uh, of Suzanne who kind of gets you know is, a, is an awkward wallflower gets this new friend and then this new friend starts to replace her in her own life um and it's kind of a like be careful what you wish for because you know maybe maybe Jules's life wasn't as bad as she thought <laughs> um you know until it gets taken away and, and things are uh irreparably changed um and then for the series you know obviously we kept that storyline, but we wanted to break it open a little bit more, you know, lean into the adult stories more. It wasn't a, a YA, you know, more, <clears throat> not all ages, but, you know, it, YA inclusive, but for adults as well um, mm. in the series. And, and, and what I was really interested in exploring, you know, to make it kind of fun and fresh creatively for me is why, why does Suzanne take this girl home? you know, what happened in Mm. Suzanne that she makes this, you know, really questionable move. And so that was what was really um, had the meat on the bone for us as writers to explore in the writer's room and was really, you know, um, what Emily wanted to dig into. And so that's really what our um, limited, you know, TV limited series version um, how we framed it, of course, keeping all the spooky stuff and and keeping um, you know, the the jewels aspect because that is important and it's also you know really a story of of a family that falls apart um and and yeah. reforms in, in a, it's a pretty tragic way um it's kind of the like um, you know, taking that idyllic family and 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 turning that on its head is um so it's a it it, it it was a really cool creative exercise to get to work on this story and if in in a couple of different forms and lean into what those forms offered you know we we uh in this series got to lean in more to the the, the detective and that sort of unraveling the mystery storyline and you know eventually go behind the curtain and really get to be inside the world that may came from and see Mm -hmm. why she wanted to leave it um and uh so was a really exciting process you know i work i I started as a playwright i Mm -hmm. um had ghost written a couple young adult novels and then i wrote devil in ohio i've um mostly have done TV in the last decade and a little bit of film, but, um, you know, so I've worked in different, um, formats and so, um, it's exciting to find what's, what's fresh and interesting about a certain medium and, and how to tell a story in that medium in a way that works well.
0: Yeah. Well, I felt that, You know, all the characters I felt were served really well. I thought the jewels of the story was very compelling, as being this child who, all of a sudden, sort of feels uh, like forgotten in her own home. And I was also, I was also really compelled by May. I mean, I think you know, I feel like Devil in Ohio can resonate for folks in different ways. for For me, it it resonated for me as a kind of an adoption story or a foster story, being adopted myself. So, I really was fascinated with May's character and just sort of feeling like she is doing her best to fit in. And, and um, you know, her, whether, you know, sometimes there are moments where it's sort of clear that she is, um, is sort of knowingly sabotaging, you know, but mm-hmm. other times feels a little bit less conscious or self, sub- subconsciously, you know, trying to just, you know, ingratiate
3: herself. 100%. You know, she <clears throat> May is someone who grew up uh, the daughter of a cult leader, right? So she uh, that is how she that is what she knows and mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know, those subtle forms of uh manipulation, you know, to her their survival, right? She right. cannot go back. Under she will die if she goes back. She cannot go back. So she will do anything to to stay with this family and to stay in safety and to stay with Suzanne and um and so you know it brings up a lot of a lot of questions and it and it you know to me it always asks the question you know you can you can take the girl out of the cult but can you take the cult out of the girl how ingrained is this patterning how Mm -hmm. difficult is it to change um Suzanne is someone in a lot of ways who's been able to work with her own psychology, but then she also has a blind spot, which, you know, is pointed out to her. And, um, right. that's the monster. The monster is not some outer thing. The monster is our own blind spot, our own, um, gaps in who we are versus who we think we are. hmm you know, that those, those pieces of the unconscious, the shadow, you know, talk about Jung a little bit in there. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, you know, it was all really, uh, fun, interesting stuff to play with, um, the psychology of, and, and, and then therefore the behavior of, of these people. And, um, it, it was really, it was really a great um, sandbox to, to to be in.
0: I love that what you're saying about um, the ways in which you know those things in ourselves can be those monsters. And I think you know it's like you're with this story, definitely using uh, some of some tropes of of scary stories, jump scares and things like that. And but I like that way of sort of framing it within a sort of an emotional um, understanding of ourselves. And I think you know, I want to talk to you more about uh, Stephen King in a moment, but like, um, yeah, I mean, like I'm, I think about like uh, the one I've talked about on here once before was like a movie called more by Haneke, uh, the director, the Austrian director. It's about a couple and they're in their 80s and the wife suffers a horrible stroke and is deteriorating quickly and the husband's sort of facing isolation and there are these jump scares in that movie it plays like a horror film despite the fact that it's really sort of at its heart about loneliness and
3: mm.
0: you know and end of life and um yeah so you know but i'm curious for you i mean you you've also written on a Stephen King series called Castle Rock for mm-hmm. Hulu and you know how, how impactful are you know, use of scary stories. What what do they mean for you with your writing? Had you experimented a lot with telling stories that sort of engage with uh, uh, scary tropes? Or you know, was this was Devil in Ohio uh, that had come after Castle Rock? But you wrote Devil in Ohio, I guess, 2017. Is that right?
3: Yeah, the book came out in 2017. What um, do you like
0: about scary stories?
3: Well, I, the way I look at the genre personally, and what the way I like to approach it is like the horror of the everyday, yeah, these things in our lives that we kind of brush off, but if we but they they are scary, right like bodily autonomy uh-huh. women right. don't have control over their bodily uh, like over their bodies in right many states that's scary that's yeah. a horror that's horrific
1: right? right
3: and if we like so kind of taking these things that we live with and like digging digging under the surface a little bit or kind of exploiting that um those um moments uh, or feelings exploiting but uh excavating let's say that um yeah yeah. you know and and enlarging those that that is how I like to approach horror because it stays character-based um and fairly grounded and to me is absorbable um you know in terms of that too I remember reading the Stephen King book on writing and Hmm. he tells this story about how he goes to the doctor he had some pain in his ear he was a kid and he they said this won't hurt a bit and then they put <laughs> uh, a, a syringe needle into his ear and it hurt like hell yeah and, wow. and 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 he was he was horrified by that moment and that really stuck with me this like you know horror of the everyday moments and that's kind of how i approach horror um the way i do it i mean obviously there are you can then take that and then extrapolate on that and then the horror becomes the the enemy monster becomes personified by a werewolf or a vampire or something right you know supernatural so that's sort of the next step out um on the sort of scale a little bit um yeah and um and 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 so it is interesting. I, I hadn't, I, I just sort of ended up in, you know, working on projects. I actually, one of the, my, my second job in Hollywood was working as a script coordinator on Dexter.
0: Right, I saw that. And, mm-hmm. and
3: that was like a real sort of grad school in kind of dark, macabre, That's you crazy. know, storytelling. And it was it was great for me, and I learned a lot. I read every single draft of every single you know, script outline story area that, that, that came out of, um, that office. And so, um, I really was steeped in it. And, um, and so that kind of brought me into that world. And, um, and I really, it, it, it had been a genre that I was kind of a little bit afraid of. I was, I've, I'm still scared watching horror movies. It's not necessarily something that I seek out, um, those kinds of scares because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sensitive. So, um, but now I really enjoy, I enjoy it as a tool for storytelling and uh, you know, finding the playfulness in that and finding the kind of, um, you know, those feelings like oh, who is this g-? you know Peter was like who is this girl in my house and then you translate that into a long shot down the hallway and he's standing mm. by himself yeah. and it's like you know you get that sort of dread and unease and I, and I love translating those feelings of feeling unsettled um, into um, dramatic and visual you know moments drama- mm-hmm. dramatizing those
0: yeah, i do too i'm finding more and more like i remember seeing the humans on broadway and oh there, yeah there's that just that was that was such a great example of like and i saw the film as well i thought it was good it's like it's such a great example of like you you, you know because my my, my, my previous memory or uh, Connor mcpherson or uh um, mm-hmm. you know some of the these pillow mar-
3: man terrifying
0: oh i have not ne- that's the one i haven't seen is oh, the pillow man but i i, I yeah so i guess that's got to be on my list i mean I spent some time in the UK, and I was—I think the, what I was familiar with was like um, there was a play over there called, I think, *The Woman in Black*, and I think oh, they yes. made it into a film. That's like a, just a—that's just like a haunted house story, you know. Yeah. Um But I really resonate. I've always resonated with Stephen King's stories. I feel like *Baba Duke* was a great example of like uh, mm-hmm. a movie that engaged in a similar way to you know like the shining where it's like it's not the dad it's the mom who's going through mm-hmm. the thing and you know i, I really i really I, I appreciate what you're saying about that i think that's really cool and um yeah and maybe we're sort of we're, we're we're embracing um this genre and finding really cool i mean certainly jordan peele is doing really cool things with the genre as well and and, and turning it on its head and playing with that,
3: one hundred percent. And I, I, I wish Castle Rock had continued. It was a really fun show. I worked on season two, the Annie um, um, uh Lizzie Kaplan season, and worked on the Annie Wilkes backstory: how did she get to be how she is? And worked on that, um, that, you know, that episode in particular too, with with her mother and the, you know, like how. I I, I I love digging under the surface and and seeing why people are who they become and yeah, um, right. it was a really it was a really fun show it was a shame that um, I think that was a result of some some merger merger oh, yeah. moves right. sadly um
0: now that episode you're referring to is that the is that the laughing place
3: yes which I wrote and produced and, um, it was shortlisted for an Emmy, which was very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Congrats on that. That was, it was named one of entertainment weekly's best TV episodes of 2019.
3: Yes. Thank you very much.
0: Um, so now you've talked about, you've also worked on many more critically acclaimed and hit streaming series like hunters on prime condor, uh, Jack Ryan and heels. Um, and I do, I do want to take it back for a second because it looks like your first TV job, if IMDb is correct, was working as a writer's assistant on Weeds, starting, mm-hmm. starting the always fantastic Mary Louise Parker. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that first writer's assistant job is a sort of a storied uh, Rubicon to cross. Um, am I using Rubicon, right? <laughs> I, think so. I like to use fancy words and not totally know what I'm saying. Um, but that's a hard, it's hard to make that, uh, it's hard to sort of graduate to that first writer's assistant job. Could you talk a little bit about, how did that come about for you?
3: Yeah, it it's hard to break in. I mean, I, I spent a few years, um, I was writing plays in New York. Um, I, uh, was in a group called young blood at ensemble studio theater, uh, which is a group of emerging playwrights under 30. Um, which, you know, my fellow writers were, um, Liz Merriweather and Eli Clark and Dorothy Fortberry, GM Crowther and, um, Annie Baker, just, just an incredible group of uh, people, particularly women. Um, and, um, so I was doing that and I ended up going, uh, uh, I had a play that was produced, it did well. Um, And so I decided to go to grad school, went to Columbia, uh, got a master's in playwriting there. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I sold a play to a network. Uh, It was one of the Viacom, like, teen networks that it was actually a little bit before it's time they were like oh we need content that for our nickelodeon audience who's aging up we need content for teenagers
1: Hmm. and
3: so i they bought this play that i had and i i adapted it into uh, a pilot for them and then they ended up going under the the network which was so sad they had degrassi and some other shows like that and they, they went under which is so sad because the next year it was like the ya boom They were just Uh. like a little bit ahead of their time. Anyway, so, but it piqued my interest in TV. So I started coming out to Los Angeles for meetings and I would just meet with anybody who would sit down with me. And, um, I just really want, I love TV so much and it was kind of lining up with the, you know, that, the expansion of storytelling in TV and, you know, with, um, the great, you know, the Sopranos and Weeds and all these like great, um, dramedies you know, character driven, uh, stories with incredible plot, you know, like, um, and I was like, oh, I can do that, you know, like, I, 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 this, I, I like that and, and I think I can do that. So, uh, yeah, I just, I, uh, just ended up, um, I had a couple of friends who were staff writers on Weeds and so they, told me about the job and I applied. And they, I was actually in Louisville, Kentucky. I had a short play in the Actors' Theater of Louisville. of yeah. yeah. uh, the Humanica, a, Humana, Humana right? Festival. Humana right. Festival, yes. And so I was, I was in uh, Kentucky and the, 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 the people hiring at Weeds called me and they said, um, uh, do you, can you come in for an interview on Friday? um, in LA. And I said, yes. And I hung up and I call, I said, Delta, uh, <laughs> one ticket to Hollywood, please. Yeah, And, um, and it was a little, you build it, they will come. And, you know, they're like, so you live here, right? I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I was right. in the process of moving, but I, um, and they were like, you're overqualified. And I was like, I know that's okay. Like, I just want to, please, please just let yeah. me in, let me in. And, um, and so I so I did it and I I learned a lot you know I was got to be in a writer's room for the first time see how it all worked um uh um and I also script coordinated which is like um you know so I ended up having that skill as well um so after one season on Weeds I ended up moving over to Dexter and I because I wanted to be more in drama and so I was a script coordinator on that for a season and then um, I worked on, uh, flesh and bone for stars, uh, mm-hmm. and, um, which was a great experience. And I was going to get staffed on season two and then season two didn't happen. And then I was bummed. And then finally I got staffed on a show called shut eye, um, which was on one of Hulu's first shows back when Hulu oh, cool. was a baby. Yeah.
1: Um,
3: and that starred Jeffrey Donovan and Isabella Rossellini and, um, uh, it was run by a really incredible writer named Les Boheme, and um, so that was that was great. And because I had you know apprenticed in all these other rooms, I I was thrown into the deep end on the show. There were there were only five uh, people in the writers room, and way more experienced than me. I mean, one woman worked on Fraser. uh, You know, they, they were all like really. Uh, established um, incredible writers and um, but because I'd spent so much time sort of learning how it worked I, I could really swim um, and the producer of that was um, Melissa Bernstein who knew that I had produced a uh, theater and um, so she pushed for me to produce on set up in Vancouver and so I got to go up as a staff writer uh, I produced numerous episodes on set and um and, and, and most of the rest of the staff was EP. So they were like, oh, can you cover my episode? And I, and I was like, yes. Like, I was so excited. I didn't have a family yet. And I was like living in a hotel. And I thought it was so cool. So I ended up, um, as a staff writer, getting to produce a lot, which I didn't know at the time, but really became such invaluable experience because of what's happened, you know, mostly worked in streaming, but because of what's happened in streaming, where they cut everybody loose, um right. but for production they,
0: they don't want writers on set the way that they would previously is that part of that
3: well they want one they they don't want to pay for people to stay on mm-hmm. staff um okay. be, it, it's it. because produ- it's because the writing used to be the you know you get you know a f- 4 weeks lead time then you start filming mm-hmm. right broadcast mm-hmm. so, so the writing and the filming is happening simultaneously so the writer will write an episode and then they'll go produce their episode and hopefully the set was just, you know, down the block on in the same lot and you're all together and then they come back to the room and they write another episode. So everyone, you know, traditionally in the broadcast model is writing and producing at the same time. And so right. they're learning how to make TV. It's really uh, a pipeline, uh, an apprenticeship, a mentorship um, at, that the showrunners pass down this knowledge because... Nobody else knows how to do it. It's really right. specific. It's a very, very specific thing, making a, a TV show, which is why I love it, because I love being a writer and I love being a producer. And I love doing them both at the same time, even though it's near impossible, <laughs> especially <laughs> when sounds... they take away your staff and you don't have anyone left. So, But now yeah. in streaming, you write it, and then the production is later. So they don't want to pay the staff to continue on because they're not actively writing anymore as Mm. they were on the broadcast models so that's kind of part of the problem that streaming has presented and why our payment systems are were built off of the the broadcast model right and they are not set up to sustain the 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 streaming model which is why we have in an in a world now current landscape that's so dominated by streaming why we're on strike because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we're not making enough money to stay in this profession and we're not training those people. Like if I was on that Hulu show now, should I, there's no way I would be producing multiple episodes as a staff writer. I would have been long gone. You
0: wouldn't have been At, up in Vancouver, for example.
3: No, I would not have been yeah. up in Vancouver. She, you know, uh, I, m- there it would have been my i my producer would not have been able to keep me on yeah and so the pipeline it, it's problematic because there's no pathway to pass down the institutional knowledge right. like yeah we might have a couple thousand showrunners who know what they're doing but the way we learned it was from other showrunners and if right. there's if we're not training anybody then the whole thing what it, it dies when we die i mean like and mm-hmm. if we're overworked you know, it's no joke uh, that, you know, they were interviewing some sh- some showrunners and they're talking about checking in with each other to make sure they don't have heart attacks. And it, it's right, not, right. Yeah, it's not a joke. I it's mean, a the, the, it's a lot of stress in the amount of hours that, you know, I was working 18 hours a day, six to seven days a week for- well, I was gonna
0: say, so right. Two so years. For Devil in Ohio, would that have represented your your first showrunner uh, job? Yes. Or, yeah, okay.
3: Yeah, so that was my first job as a showrunner and, um, I had a writer's room and then I had pre-negotiated because another showrunner told me, make sure you
0: hmm.
3: get keep someone on and do it at the beginning. So it's in the budget. So right. it's not a fight you're having later. Um, and I did. And I knew I, I negotiated for one person. That was all I could get to stay with me through production. So thank God I had an incredible uh, writer, producer, Andrew Wilder, who had worked on... Um, you know, criminal minds and, you know, Dick Wolf shows. And was a really seasoned producer,
1: Yeah.
3: um, because it was very difficult, um, producing. It was the amount of days that we had for what we had to shoot were incredibly challenging. And mm-hmm. I've done this yeah. a, a long time and I produced on Castle Rock and other shows as well. So it wasn't my first rodeo, but I, but it was even for veterans like Andrew and, um, someone like myself who's this was my 12th season of television i've worked on it was pretty brutal the um the shooting schedule that we were under because of our budget to 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 make it work so and then when i got into post-production um i lost they they, I, i lost andrew and it was just me for months and months and months and The studio had some creative notes that we had to change a lot of the tone of the show in post. So I was doing all that work with the editors. So I was working 12 hours a day, six days a week in post-production with no help.
0: Wow. That's a hard thing to do. Changing tone? My God. Just you and an editor. I mean, the editors, what they do is so extraordinary. Uh, yeah, we
3: were rewriting the show essentially. Yeah, so it was a very very difficult process, and um, uh, you know it was it was great. I got to you know m- make this show and and have this creative endeavor, but it was and it, but it was incredibly challenging, even for um, someone who with a lot of experience in this business. So it's not super sustainable the way it's going. I can't do that continually work 18 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, I, I, I'll I'll die. So it's, it's like the model, the model that is, is currently in play with streaming is, is, is not super sustainable. Now everyone has different experiences. My experience was probably on the extreme side, but you know, um, we as as an industry as a whole, with the studios, as our partners, we do have to figure out how to make this more sustainable yeah yeah for the health of ourselves in like as humans and the for the health of our industry. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty existential moment, which I think mm-hmm. is why you know we all just are buckling down and having this fight because if we don't there's there's our industry is will not be sustainable. um, And um, uh, we won't have jobs to come back to.
0: Let me ask you, I want to get back to a little bit about um, your training, you know, you you had talked a little bit about so you went to BU where you got your BFA in playwriting. Um, Is that correct?
3: Yes. I studied theater. I actually was in the acting department and, uh, but quickly realized that acting made me very nervous. And (laughs) (laughs) what I really liked was dialogue and the way people talk to each other and exploring, you know, the script analysis. And, um, I, I became more interested in dissecting the script. Um, and uh then performing it. So, uh I moved into into playwriting. I actually I was actually walking down the hallway uh in my the beginning of my senior year and a teacher came up to me who had been one of my acting teachers and he said, "You are a writer and <laughs> you need to take my playwriting class." Oh, wow. And I was like, "Uh okay yeah, okay all right I'll, I'll take your playwriting class and so I took his playwriting class and I ended up we, being really busy we had really full schedules like it, you know we had we had classes all day long and then we had rehearsal every night mm-hmm. till 11 you know we had rehearsal on Saturdays like it was a really immersive oh, yeah. wonder, wonderful program sure. and so I was like oh I don't have time to write this play and so I tried to drop the class and I got the paper, I filled, yeah, because it was paper back then. And I filled it all out and I like brought it for him to sign. And he goes, I'm not signing that. Oh. And I was like, no, I can't take this class. I don't uh. have time. He said, I'm not signing it. Uh, not training you would be like not training a ballerina. And I'm not doing it. And just finish, just finish your play and that's all you need to do to get an A in the class. And I was like, oh, OK. And like, so I finally finished this play. It was my first play. And the school ended up producing it for the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. Oh, my God. And I, yeah, I saw it,
0: Kennedy Center on your resume. My God. Yeah,
3: I, w- I was you know a that was winner. was when you were in college. I was, yes, That's I was awesome. 21. And I won this contest and got to perform the play at the Kennedy Center. And it got published. And so I landed in New York with a published play. And um, I was like, okay, this door is opening. I'm going to walk through this, uh, you know, I'm going to pursue this path. Because I was still pursuing acting a little bit, but um, it was hard to find roles. I was always very tall. Um, I'm six Mm. feet. So, you know, at 21 years old, I, I didn't look you know, like a teenager, which is what people my age were playing. You know, so mm-hmm. I it I wasn't easy to um, I, I wasn't working very much, and um, and I like I said, it made me really nervous. Though, like uh, you know, the, the ha-
0: what the being seen like, and heard part?
3: Well, because cause I mostly pro- you're did theater. Hearing
0: that now, but yeah,
3: it was mostly because I did theater and like the the terror of being on stage with no net. You know, like that. That was very well because I um, have to
0: I have to ask you about this because thinking. because are because this is something because your mom is was a Alexander Technique teacher at, yes. at the school right?
3: Well, she started um, the year I was leaving.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So, but wait a minute. So, so, but I'm curious. Growing up, what that I wonder how much of that was playing on your thoughts in terms of what you ended up doing and being involved in the arts is being sort of, uh, influenced by mom's work.
3: Yeah. I was always, um, you know, my mother was a modern dancer before I was born and lived in New York, uh, city and, you know, was a dancer and, um, and then kind of got into, uh, yoga and body work and that, um, eventually, you know, turned into the Alexander technique. Now she, Integrates that with um, somatic experience work and trauma work. She teaches a lot Mm -hmm. with Gabor Mate, um, who's an amazing um, author and speaker. He wrote When the Body Says No and um, uh, has done a lot of work with addiction. And uh, anyway, Mm so um, yeah, she always exposed me to the arts. You know, I grew up going to classical music concerts and dance and theater um my mom worked with some of the dancers in the Boston Ballet for a while when I was growing up so we would always go to the ballet and like we'd like watch the Nutcracker from the you know backstage and um so I did grow up in the around a lot of performing arts and I'm uh, very grateful for that and I'm sure that has obviously had an enormous um effect on on me um so yeah and then and then, in terms of like TV film, like my dad got, um, my parents got divorced. My dad got, uh, he got cable like back when it was like. Oh, yeah. Early cable. And right. so we had all these like movie channels and we just like, every weekend, my sister and I just like binged, like, cause I didn't grow up watching a lot of TV, um, but we watched so many movies and I yeah, just yeah. like absorbed it like a sponge. So
0: um, I was kind of the same. We were not allowed. to. So I was growing up in Boston around the time we're outside in Concord, Mass. Oh, yeah. I was in um, Brookline. Oh, amazing. Um, And I remember like we missed the bus one morning, my sister and I, because we were watching TV and that was (laughs) it. We were not allowed to watch TV ever during the week after that. And we just had the, the one little CRT TV in the in the den or whatever. And um, you know, so yeah, I didn't watch a lot, but my dad was working in, uh, in the home video department uh, for a while for Columbia Pictures went at that wow. age. So I was, so he was bringing home a lot of VHS tapes of like, um, r- like Remains of the Day and like mm-hmm. <laughs> Glory <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Ghost, and Ghostbusters and things like that. So I, even though we were living in Massachusetts uh, and he was, he was working a little bit out in New York City. Parents were together, but he was doing this commute. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I was having the same thing. I was watching a lot of movies that were, like, about adult, real adult things. <laughs> I was a young age, and I think that ruined me. You know, <laughs> if you go and watch – we were talking about this earlier, but that thing of, like, horror and emotional storytelling, and it's like if you watch Remains of the Day – uh, it'll break your heart in a thousand pieces. I mean, it's and there, there are absolutely moments of that movie where you just feel horrified um, at the way that that character, his life ends up, and um,
3: heartbreaking. Yeah,
0: but that was a uh, that was, was kind of a similar thing. Growing up in Boston uh, or outside of Boston, and um, how long did you live in uh, Brookline? Because I understand you moved around a lot.
3: Um, I lived in Brookline till I was eighteen, and then I went to. BU, which was, you know, uh, I moved over to, you know, Alston, one town over, and then after college, I moved to New York, but my father was from Egypt, and so I grew up traveling a lot, Uh, and we had family in all different places, so um, I I had, you know, been to about five continents, Um, so, you know, by the time I was a teenager.
0: So may I ask him so that this is also this is something you and I also have in common which is that we share middle eastern heritage. Um so and I understand uh so I yeah so but could you explain to me a little bit about you so you're traveling around, you're spending time with dad traveling when you're with dad and then you're home with mom in Massachusetts. By the way, this is very I'm getting into some pretty personal territory here. I'm more I'm more interested only because like my childhood was had some similar stuff i moved around Uh, mostly my parents were together but it was mostly because my dad's work would take us like to the uk for a few years or something like that you know
3: oh i see um i the the majority of my like kid travel was with my dad was er early years like before my parents got divorced although you know, then my father moved down to Costa Rica. And so I used to go down there to visit him. Yeah. Um, and then I, like me and my mom and my sister, like and when I was a teenager, went to live in an ashram in India. Um, wow. So, and and I went to Egypt with my dad in, um, in the 2000s. So it was, it became more separate travel or just my own travel, you know, like after college, I, you know, I went, I studied in in London and then I backpacked through Europe and went down to Africa, went to Morocco, you know, like I just kind of had that travel bug. So, you know, it internalized a little bit. Um, I'm glad I, I'm glad I, um, did all that because I, I haven't, in the last decade, I really have barely had any time (laughs) to go anywhere. So just been working. Um, I feel that but, way now, yeah. too,
0: because I feel like I've been in L.A. with, I mean, we, we get, Kath and I get a little bit of opportunity to maybe take a little vacation somewhere, but, you know, uh, the last time we were out of the, well, yeah, it's it's much more rare, and I feel like you're, when you're in L.A., you feel very much like heads down, pencil, pe- <laughs> pencils, pencils, <down, laughs> yeah. pencils writing, um, yeah. so, yeah, I, I, are you feeling that a little bit, too? I mean, do you feel like in your sort of, now in your adult life, you're much more like, God, like day in day out, I'm on the grind in LA.
3: Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know after uh, after after two years of uh, show running, I, I did need a little bit of a break, but I you know I would work like I told my showrunner friend he's like, don't work too hard. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm only working like nine to five. <laughs> Jesus like I'm only working eight hours a day like an eight hour work day like it, work week, it's yeah. like nothing you know yeah. he's like oh okay okay just
0: just just do to take I'm a, a like, quick trip to France and you're like wait a minute
3: <laughs> yeah exactly no, no french hours for me um but uh yeah it's um you know it, uh, look i i it's work but i love i love what I do as well you yeah. know um and that's <clears throat> well that's that's part of the tricky part of when you're we're talking about you know the unpaid labor i mean that's why we are exploitable because right. we do love what we do and we want to do it and we're gonna not gonna walk away from these great opportunities so then we take the prices, you know payment it's a little less than we want or not fair this or that you know it's like it's a sort of blessing and a curse to um to love what we do so much like yes we get to do do You know, um, it's an incredible profession and I feel lucky to be able to do this, um, for, you know, for my profession, but, um, but, but it, but it does have a backside of like, oh, but I really want to do that. Okay. Uh, You know, but, um, no, I mean, that's, that is a plus as, as you kind of get, go down the road, as you get to say no more and you get to kind of do things more on your own terms, um as much as as much as we can
0: now you've written some you've written a lot of plays you've one of them uh called the the luxor express which as i understand was inspired by your your dad's life growing up in egypt um and uh and uh last year you had a around the same time as uh your i feel like your netflix series was coming out you also had one of your plays um was produced, at, which you directed as well. You directed mm-hmm. your play, Palmyra, am I pronouncing that right? Palmyra. Palmyra, at Center Theater Group's Kirk Douglas Theater, which ran on uh, their CTG's digital stage. Big congrats on that as well. Thank you. Um, um, this is a story that follows an American photographer, Jodi, who's captured by, <coughs> at the Syrian border by ISIS. She sets out to befriend one of her captors, a young woman named Aisha. Ideologies clash as Jody searches for common ground in a desperate attempt to prove that she is worth more alive than dead. Um, when you when you do engage in Middle Eastern storytelling, um, you know how much of your uh, dad's story uh, has been influential
1: for you
3: that's a great question I think <clears throat> excuse me um you know early on I did write things that were a little bit more autobiographical like the Luxor Express you know was kind of inspired <clears throat> by a version of my dad and a version of myself um and then Palmyra kind of branched out you know further from that and um so it was definitely you know part of my process of growing as an artist and finding, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> um, finding myself um, and finding my voice. Um, but uh, now that I've found it, uh, I, it's,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I,
3: I, I, it's not as necessary to engage with as, as it had been at, at a different time. Um, but it's certainly experiences that I draw on and I, I you know, I love sort of international storytelling like Jack Ryan Hunters, like I love bopping around into you know, dropping into different cultures and telling different people's stories. I love kind of being a a fly on the wall in different worlds and um exploring that. So that's really fun to to watch um and to to to, to write for me still.
0: Now you're also involved with the, uh, to some degree I think, with the new Middle Eastern Writers Committee, um, which is a new committee that's part of the WGA. Um, and the mission of the Middle Eastern Writers Committee is to boost visibility and employment of Middle Eastern writers within the film and TV industry while celebrating and promoting accurate portrayals of Middle Eastern characters. Um, and for any of our, any Middle Eastern writers out there, particularly folks who are in the WGA or are pre-WGA, are there some ways that they could uh, participate in this committee?
3: Oh yeah, it's it's an open committee. Um, um, m- w- Middle Eastern writers make up only about 3%, 3% I yeah. think, something mm-hmm. like that, of the um, job, union job holders, um, right. Right. which is yeah. uh, a, a little bit of a rough statistic. Yeah. Um but uh, so I so for well for a while, it, Middle Eastern like wasn't di- recognized as a di- diversity category. That's right. Yeah. Um, because there's a whole thing about how those categories are funded by certain groups. Well, there's also the apparently
0: laws that go back to like the Chinese Exclusion Act, in which right where Middle Eastern folks lobbied to be considered whites. I believe at the time it's very complicated
3: yeah Uh, but but bottom
0: bottom line is this is a group that deserves protections in the United States today
3: sure and and voice you know I mean so so, um so it's a really lovely group and um I've uh you know been I've taught a couple of workshops and you know been on panels and uh try to participate with the group as much as I can right now um the participation is going to a picket you know they've had some Mm -hmm. get-together pickets um so you can follow them on social media i think it's like m-e-w-c middle eastern writers committee uh something like that um and you know you can just meet in a social sense which sometimes is the best way to um form relationships uh in this business so that's that's Right now, during the strike, that's how they're active. Um, but I think you can just join the group if, you're, if you are you can, you know, consider yourself Middle Eastern, um, and then can be on their mailing list for future events. Um,
0: now, you're, you were also involved uh, with another group uh, that we, I think we should talk about, which is that you're a founding member of a collective of playwrights, directors, and producers in LA and New York who take action to create gender equality in the American theater. Can you speak a little bit about your experience with the group, the Kilroy's?
3: Yes. Um, So there was an interesting time in theater, I guess about eight years ago, maybe 2015-ish, where a lot of information was coming out and um, studies were coming out that only 20% of the plays produced nationally were by Uh, women playwrights Mm. and that was a pretty horrifying number especially when population is 50-50 approximately Mm -hmm. and ticket buyers are 75% women Hmm. Um, and so you know there was a lot of conversations happening in the theater community of you know what should we do you know it, it comes from a long history of Patriarchy, unconscious bias. What do we consider a quote-unquote good play? It's an everyman mm-hmm. story. It's mm. Joseph Campbell. It's hero's journey. There's a lot of mm. gender built into uh, what we consider good uh, storytelling. Right. Fine. So we're coming off of you know <clears throat> millennia of of. Uh, this kind of thinking. So I was having conversations with a handful of friends who happened to be women and non-binary, and we said, all right, look, let's stop complaining about this. Let's do something about it. And we said, you know, what, one of the things we kept hearing from the, the artistic directors who at that time were mostly male, mostly white, again, in the line of patriarchy, um, mm-hmm. and they would say, we, we would love to produce women, Uh, we we weren't placed by women. We just don't, we can't find them. Right, right. We don't have them. And then this this like pipeline issue, right? Because they're not getting as many workshops, so they're not getting as much support. They're not getting the benefit of the doubt. You know, they're not getting called geniuses when they're 23, you know, like whatever, all these things. But we said, okay, okay, you need place. We're going to find place for you. So what we did is we formed this collective and we surveyed, Hundreds of industry professionals in the theater, and we asked them for their favorite unproduced plays by women and non-binary, uh, and trans, uh, writers.
0: Fantastic.
3: So we got this list, and and we then we launched it in the New York Times. We said, here's a list of you know forty something whatever plays. We didn't pick them, but we facilitated it. Go produce these plays. Here they are. <laughs> and so we kind of started this annual list and you know, we know we put a lot of effort into our nominators, the people that we were serving, making sure they were from diverse backgrounds and making sure we were Having input from smaller theaters, you know, artistic directors from uh, we had uh, geographical representation. That we had people recommending from every single state, you know, like well, not just New York, LA, and you know the Chicago, the big places, the big right. theaters,
0: right?
3: Hubs. So we, uh, anyway, so we did this, and then we then we published. Um, I think we published monologues, a book of monologues. We uh, might have done a second volume. And um, and that became our really our main thing was this list and that we did fairly annually uh, for uh, four or five years. Um, and we also did some other, you know, events where we sent cakes to 20 theaters who had more than 50 percent, you know, female non-binary written plays you know (laughs) programming you know
0: uh, who does not like cake as a reward yeah
3: yeah it was you know so it was like we tried to kind of be like disruptive like like the the banksy of theater you know and not be boring and um and uh you know we did very limited fundraising just to for our core you know to pay for the website and kind of some core operating costs but like We had a big party with like a speakeasy theme, you know, like we're not, we're not going to ask you for money all the time. We're going to ask you for money once and it's going to be fun. (laughs) Come to our party, you know, like, so it it was a really fun and, um, disruptive at the time group. Um, and then the original 13 people who founded it, we ended up, we passed on the reins to a new group of, of, uh, who's, who's the, we, the board now. So, um, they are still carrying the torch. Um, it was very difficult with COVID and the theater uh, landscape uh, for the past few years. So yeah, right. it's been a little bit of- It's a
0: tricky time. I was just reading yeah. the New York Times article about the public doing away with their, they, they had a play festival they did away with. The Humana Festival is Under now, the radar? Under oh, the no. radar. The Humana Festival I believe is done for the moment. Um, oh my god. Yeah, it's, you know, they because and there's always been this refrain about theater that we know from growing up, which is they were already saying when we were kids that the theater was always dying. Now they're saying it's like imploding before our eyes. So <sighs> I think, you know, and 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 there and by the way there's um IATSE folks who might go on strike now next it, who are part of who are working hard in Broadway and regional houses which they should. Um you know, I, my hope is that uh I I don't I don't envision that these that theater is ever going away for good. I think that there needs to be hard conversations in terms of how can we be doing things better, serving uh, uh, both creatives and audiences in a more equitable way. And um, I, I have high hopes, but I think that you know there ne- may, maybe needs to be some pain that we will have to travel through during this sort of historic summer that we're having. Hopefully, good things will come out of it. But if we wanted to direct folks, I do have a website for the Kilroys. Um, folks who are interested in, in either donating or getting involved should visit the Kilroys. That's k i l r o y s dot org um, to Excellent. donate yeah. or get involved.
3: I think maybe there's a there, there might be a mailing list to uh, sign up on there.
0: I'm not sure, but I can take a look. But I think that uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Um, Or they're on
3: socials. Uh, Mailing lists are are, are, for old news. (laughs) They're on socials. You can follow them on socials.
0: (laughs) While we're talking about links, maybe we could also direct folks to the Entertainment Community Fund. Um, This is a strike fund that is providing a safety net for performing arts and entertainment professionals, including for our many crew members. Um, And to donate, they can head to entertainmentcommunity.org. There's um,
3: also a new group called uh, the Union Solidarity Coalition, Tusk, T-U-S-S-C, and they hmm. just had a big fundraiser, and that is through the Motion Picture Television Fund, and that is uh, to help pay for, right now, uh, we did a fundraiser to help raise money for IATSE and Teamsters who've lost their yeah. um, uh, insurance coverage because of the strikes. So um, that's another um, another way to help out.
0: And finally, where can people find you online?
3: Me? Um, I'm on, I am still on Twitter. <laughs> the, sinking the sinking ship, yeah. ship the that rat, is Twitter. The rat infested The Jeff. rat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so cool. Um, uh, at, uh, Dariapolitan, D-A-R-I-A-Politan, P-O-L-A-T-I-N. And also Instagram. I'm on there. And, um, that one's more fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, yes, so uh, yeah, those are my places.
0: Well, Daria, thanks so much for this opportunity to chat with you. Uh, it's a very busy time right now with picketing going on, and I appreciate you taking a moment to chat with me about all things WGA and your career. And, um, you know, I haven't had enough writers on this program. I think you're our, maybe our second showrunner. It's an honor, a privilege.
3: Aw, oh, thank you for having me on. It's really nice to, to chat with you and, and get to talk about all these things that we're all uh, enmeshed in. <laughs> yeah.
0: If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, gotcha, because this was a prank. What? <laughs> Give us a subscribe and those sweet five star ratings a nice comment and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality content in the future You can check out our patreon and our swag for more ways to support the pod You can find both in our Instagram handle at things are going great for me Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontero and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editor is Leon Simone All right for you truly thorough listeners Here's a secret. I've got an update for anyone who remembers that I was taking a break from pot and nicotine. I've got over one year sober now from nicotine uh, and 16 months of no pot. What I will say is I've been working out more. um, And I've started doing so every day since the beginning of September, doing some kind of aerobic or resistance training, even if it's just 10 minutes. It's been really great for my mental health, so that'll be the new thing to follow. Let's see how long I can keep that up. Also, I don't know if I mentioned, but I I finally bought the movie Point Break. (laughs) I'm about 20 minutes into it, and so far it's a lot of Gary Busey. A lot. A lot. So stand by for updates on that as well. See you next time.